us a quiver's full of hope. I've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope. Aspen's gold on snow-capped peaks, the elk call me away. I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day. I've got Nimrod neurosis, longbows on the brain. I'm an outdoor junkie through and through, hunts my middle name. My eyes are on the target, broadheads all fly true. Can't wait till I can get outside so I can fling a few. Drag Quest. Bob the Bow Hunter. What's going on, my man? Not much. Just living the dream. We got our favorite wingnut on here, Carson Brown. What's going on, Carson? Oh, not much. Just uh, into the work week. Sanded a bunch of shafts today. Making wood? Gotta go blow the sawdust out of my nose here soon. Nice. Making bacon with wood. Uh, what's going on with yep. you, Bob? Oh, just been uh, running around with a kid. You're a good dad, Bob. You're a good yeah. dad. <laughs> I don't know about that. She calls me a bad daddy quite a bit, but <laughs> uh, you just gotta let... when I cut when I cut off Katy Perry on the radio, she, I'm a bad daddy. But... That's, that's what I was just gonna say. You just gotta let her listen to Katy Perry more often, and you'll be all right. <laughs> oh, man, I've heard plenty of that lately. I'll tell you. <laughs> Uh, you been, uh, you guys been out just stumping and looking for turkeys? Yeah, if you could call it that. We've uh, yeah, nature hiking. Four year old. We saw we've seen three that. turkeys. We saw one today actually, but uh, everywhere I go, even secret spots that my buddies give me, I haven't really turkey hunted in like twenty years. But uh, everybody else knows the secret spots too. So there's <laughs> people everywhere. Did she get excited when she saw the turkey? She didn't see it. She was, oh. she was riding on my shoulders. That might have been how it spotted us. And we were sneaking up. I was just about to call off into this little draw, and I should have called about eighty yards sooner, I guess. And I went around a little corner, and it was running off. And we tried to do a little J hook around it and get in front of it and call, but you know, there, so many people have been hunting the last couple weeks they're like you know starkey elk they don't answer yes so and us <laughs> just sitting there for a couple hours waiting patiently that doesn't work with a five-year-old so <laughs> well at least uh at least you guys are getting out there and getting some fresh air and whatnot yeah good Shoot. time to get some exercise you're shooting your bow good i hear yeah i'm getting i'm getting back into it i got it's been a rough few years with the two shoulder surgeries so I'm. Uh, I don't think I'll have an excuse to miss this year. Mm, that like two two surgeries on the same shoulder? No, different. Shoulder. Let's see what I did the oh, right shoulder in 2016, and then last year 2019 the left shoulder. So, man, you got a reasonable excuse to just go shoot a compound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, someday I, I might have to. I hear those I hear compounds shoot. Yeah, those, yeah, I hear they shoot good ones. <laughs> Uh, uh, well, uh, I can't believe it, fellas. Episode 100. We made it, Bob. Yeah. We did it. Yeah. Bob didn't make it on this episode. He was uh, out turkey hunting, but uh, we had a good interview lined up, and I 
brought in good old Carson Brown to fill in for Bob. So that that worked out uh, pretty well. I think he was sober on this one, folks. So <laughs> hey, 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 I'm all, I'm always sober. Just sometimes I've had a lot to drink. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. I felt bad. I had to ditch out on work. Bob Marshall was in the shop getting work done, and I was sitting out in the suburban outside the shop <laughs> talking to Rosie Roseland with uh, James Orr. There it is, Rosie Roseland, episode 100. It's a pretty awesome interview. Um, what I mean, what a stud, right? Another one of those guys that you dig up, and I think most people haven't heard of him unless they pay close attention to Don Thomas's writings because he gets mentioned kind of in the background quite a bit here and there. Yeah, yeah. To be honest, I hadn't, I didn't know of Rosie, and then you talk to the guy, you're like, okay, I'm talking to a legend here. <laughs> yeah, he's. I wasn't even aware of. He's from that that circle of people: Doug Borland and Dick Robertson and Don Thomas. He's from that group of guys, and he's uh, Montana, uh, born and raised, and retired up there in Alaska, uh, taxidermist and. As of last year, he's now the current Pope and Young number one uh, Rocky Mountain goat, world record goat holder. World record goat. Yeah, kill the world record goat, and we cover that story on uh, on the interview and and a lot more. Um, another fascinating guy, and real interesting to uh, get to know him, and looking forward to getting him back on. Yeah, it sucked missing this one. I really wanted to. I really wanted to be on this one. He used to run around with Paul Schaefer a lot. I remember reading the stories with him. He was a houndsman and stuff, right? Yeah. So, yep. Yeah. So anyway, it sucks. I, I missed it, but I'm glad, uh, you know, we, we didn't want to reschedule. It was, you know, he's not easy guy to get a hold of. And Yeah. He said no to do the interview, like a lot of these guys that are not into self-promotion. And then I kind of just twisted his arm and whispered sweet nothings in his ear and the next thing i know he said okay let's do it tomorrow <laughs> and so you gotta get the getting why the getting's good and so so uh, we well have, i think he enjoyed it and i don't think we scratched the surface of his uh no. of all his hunting stories so you guys should get him on again at some yeah. point yeah i mean he could probably we could probably maybe up there at his cabin hunting blacktail oh we have been invited haven't we carson yeah, I heard he made it official with the email to you. Yeah, so we're invited. Yeah, I don't know I, about poor Bob here, but we end up meeting yeah, Carson. Yeah, I told James, I, I think <laughs> I can pass for Carson. I'll just, I'll just dress like Carson, and, and <laughs> there you go. Oh, all you have to do is go to Goodwill for that. <laughs> yeah. Finally going to have to hunt with a self bow, huh? Yep, uh, yep, and I'll just pass for you, so uh, there you go. There it is. Uh, yeah, oh, it was man, awesome. it sounds so, like a pretty neat opportunity. During Somebody the interview. He met, I mentioned blacktails thinking, you know, this guy, of course, he's hunted them because he lives in Alaska. But when he was like, oh, that's my that's my game right there. Uh, I knew the whole podcast kind of went in another direction. Carson was kind of like, oh, here we go. Blacktails. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, but I'm sure Carson didn't mind because he's hunting blacktails, Sitka blacktails in Alaska this year. Sucka. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited about that. I need to. I need to get my airline tickets. I'm sure they're fairly cheap right now, Alaska Airlines. You're going with uh, Clay Hayes and who else? Benji Hill. And I'm not – the other guy, 
the fourth guy is uh, one of Benji's buddies, and he's the only one in the group who's done this hunt before, so he's kind of the one who's, you know, inform us on how we need to do it, where we need to go, and, you know, kind of putting the plans together. I'm just along for the ride. Copy that. Well, that'll be that'll be a fun one, dude. You know, Clay and Benji. Benji's a hoot. I miss that guy, hopefully. Can run into him up at Whitetail Camp one of these years again. Yeah, I got. He called me and invited me initially, and I was like, "Oh, you know, sounds like great. It sounds like fun, but I, I still got to figure out how to pay for Alaska from last year, and <laughs> you know, uh, I, there's just no way I can swing it." And then the next morning, I woke up and texted him and said, "I'm in." <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was like, "I need a co-host to do this podcast. Who could I call at the last second, Carson? Carson, you do this? Yep, I'm in." So I love you, man. <laughs> Yeah, that's oh, great. I learn to start saying no. Yeah, that's for losers. We're, we're going to rope yeah. Andy into doing it, too. He's going to be, we're going to have like five co-hosts. Yeah, yeah. yeah we're going to keep, we're gonna, that's what it's going to take to keep this thing going, I guess. So, um. The, the merry band of TradQuest podcasters. Yeah. Yep. Yep, yep. Um, <laughs> we've got some good stuff we're talking about, too. we got some good stuff in the, in the in the ropes here bringing them up um i don't know what else do we got uh besides you guys are going on really awesome out-of-state hunts this year and uh, once again i'm not are you gonna hunt uh idaho are you gonna do the um whitetail camp this year bob you why oh i don't i doubt i'll be able to go doubtful hopeful but doubtful yeah i you know i was kind of same same boat, but then I heard uh, Clay sent out an email and said that uh, Aaron Snyder's shown interest in attending, and I thought, oh, that'd be fun. So I don't know. I'm gonna try and go. Not there's a lot of good reasons to go, but I just thought, well, this might be a big year over there, big camp, big big hoorah kind of hunt, and that's a good place for it there. So yeah, well, I'm gonna try to make it this year for sure. Um, what else is going on in archery that we can fill people in? I know pretty much everything's canceled. I know I was looking; it's depressing seeing Western states is canceled and yeah. longbow safaris canceled, and uh, stick and sage hasn't canceled yet. I was talking to Riley this morning, and he says they're kind of waiting and looking at it. Um, they haven't canceled that one yet, but it's kind of sad to see everything not up and running. Yeah, it sounds I like heard that coronavirus can't. Oh. The rendezvous canceled. Yeah, they're canceled. doing it. They're doing a cyber rendezvous, I guess. I, I don't really know how that works, but sounds like we're all going to get to participate online uh, and they're going to do like auctions and uh, online auctions and um, online entertainment of some kind. So that sounds interesting, I guess. Yeah, we'll see if the the border stuff's lifted. I, I'll probably I'll be up in Canada bear hunting then. Hopefully, oh it's yeah, to, oh that's right. Hopefully, supposed to open up the border May nineteenth. That's what that's the latest I've heard. But the border's closed right now, huh? Yeah, Canadian border's closed. Um, we have a customer in France that just let us. We we were supposed to ship him a bunch of shafts, and he said uh, they're not taking. No, no importation from the U.S. to France. It's like, oh, all right. Yeah. 
We'll Crazy see. times, but it sounds like they're starting to slowly open stuff back up, and it sounds like by this fall our hunting seasons will be in action at least, so that gives some everybody something good to look forward to. Um, they better. It's our first year that trad only elk hunt extension. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know, you know, I haven't heard a lot from ODFW. They, I think they did a pretty good job of keeping everything open. It sounded like Washington kind of shut everything down. And I think most of the game departments are, are doing a good job. So Yeah, Melcher was like, hunting and fishing is social distancing. So, like, why would we want to take that away? So, I mean, that, yeah. was, good. that was good. Yeah. Um, yeah. On a political front, um, what's going on? Or we're just kind of waiting for the next meetings yeah uh, oregon for our regulation changes yep um you know i talked to the guy in charge i don't know a week or two ago and and uh yeah he's gonna come out with his recommendations in may we're gonna have a little sounds like a sport group leaders meeting again somehow probably imagine over the phone and then they'll present that in their June commission meeting. So we're hopeful for our West side trad hunts. Um, and uh, we'll see what, what we can come up with and hopefully it's something good. He said, he's not going to give us, what did he say when I talked to him? I told you, James, yeah. and Carson, they called you both after I talked to him. So. He said he didn't want to give us any junkie hunts or what did he yeah, say? Or something, something like that. Like so, that. I don't know. Get you got something good. My leg. We'll probably yeah. get nothing. Stroke. Us. A, yeah. A, a traditional only dove hunt or something. <laughs> oh, no. We're going we're, we're gonna to get a good Roosevelt and Blacktail hunt, and I think uh, it'll be exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah, hopefully. So. Yeah. Um, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's do a giveaway for our uh, Patreon supporters. Uh, once again, we'd like to thank all our Patreon supporters. You guys are uh, helping fund the podcast, and we really appreciate it. Uh, we will apologize again for being slackers the last few months and not putting a lot of content out, but uh, that will change. And we've got some more good giveaways coming up. Today we are going to give away a uh, half dozen Sherwood shafts that have been uh, built by our good friend Brandon Todd up in Washington. So thank you, Brandon. Um, what's his handle on Instagram, Brandon's? Making traditional, I think he just changed it. it yeah, Blacktail Hunter O two, yeah. but now I think it's making right. traditional. Making traditional, yeah. And he built this yeah. uh, half dozen set. They're seventy seventy fives, and he uh, painted them to look like uh, old Game Getter Easton Game Getter aluminum arrows. They look really awesome. These woodies do, and he he's got feathers on them. And they're all built up, and uh, that's. Uh, that is going to be the big giveaway for episode 100. So thank you, Brandon, for supporting the podcast. And who's our big winner? Ben Bolson. Ben Bolson, our buddy Ben. So congratulations, nice. Ben. Those are some super cool shafts, and hopefully you can shove one of those through a big old Roosevelt this September. I think I think he's shooting 6570 or 7075s. So those should work for him. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. So... Uh, that's awesome. We uh, thank everybody for sticking in there with us and supporting the podcast. If you guys don't know about Patreon, uh, there's a link off of our website and there's a link off of our Instagram page. 
and uh, you guys can go check it out. Uh, we got discounts there for the guys that are supporting the podcast. You can support us for five. Is it five fifteen or thirty dollars a month, something like that? Yep. 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 And uh, we got different. Uh, Different curve longbow and self self tiers. tiers. Yeah, so get over there and check that out. We still got uh, uh, hooded sweatshirts and t-shirts and hats available. If you guys want to go to our website, um, check that out. Uh, don't forget to support our friends, uh, Addictive Archery, Andy Ponce, uh, this lizard Carson Brown. He, he doesn't need any uh, any support from you guys. Sounds like wood arrows are hot to trot. Uh, during COVID nineteen. Oh, and you, uh, Carson, oh, you still doing so the busy. half off on yeah, kid yeah. shafts for? Yeah, till the end of the month, fifty percent off kid shafts. Just finished sanding a couple thousand today. We got cleaned out on and and uh, shipped out thirty dozen to Suzanne St. Charles at Northwest Archery today, oh. and that that was the first out of the fresh batch. But we've got we've got a lot there and. Uh, Lots of kid shafts going out, so that's uh, good news for kids and archery. So, and if you support uh, and, uh, our Patreon page, you get fifteen yes. percent off of Sherwood shafts. Yep, support these losers. <laughs> I like it. I like it. So, uh, yeah, uh, go check this all those guys out. Um, Compton Traditional, our uh, national traditional bow hunting organization, and don't forget to support your local state-run traditional bow hunting organization. Episode one hundred. Awesome. Rosie Roslin. Enjoy. If I say something completely off the wall, you'll know that I completely didn't hear the question. Okay, no problem. <laughs> no problem. Uh, I wasn't okay. able to get my regular co-host on today, uh, so I've got my buddy Carson on. Um, Carson is also from Oregon. And he uh, has, uh, he's part owner of Sherwood Shafts. They make some wood shafts here in Oregon. Okay. That's, I do the, we, we manufacture wood shafts, dug fur arrow shafts. And then uh, I also am into um, self bows. Got a business called Echo Archery that uh, just focuses on supplies for uh, folks making their own self bows and in uh, that primitive side of archery as well. Um, that's kind of where my passion lies is, is you would longbows and Osage recurves and okay. that, that kind of stuff. Working okay. towards becoming a, a, a good, a great hunter like, like Rosie Roseland, but I'm, I'm still a young buck. <laughs> so, uh, Rosie Roseland, welcome to the track quest podcast. Um, I'm thrilled that I was able to twist your arm enough to drag you on here. I know, uh, self-promotion is not your thing and, uh, how I explained to you, um, you know, the Track Quest podcast, uh, the star of the show is the traditional bow, and we like to highlight traditional bow hunters, and we like to try to uh, dig up some of the uh, blue-collar guys that are in the backwoods out there getting it done that no one has ever heard of, and um, yeah, we're it's a pleasure to have you on the show, and why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, where you grew up and how you got into uh, shooting the stick and string. Um, I was a kid in Kalispell, Montana, and we didn't know anybody that hunted with bows, but everybody's dad in their fishing closet, you know, everybody had a game, game closet back in those days. Their dad did where they kept all their hunting junk. 
And um, it seemed like every everybody's dad in their closet there would be an old lemonwood long bow or some kind of bow. So and all of us for some reason we all had bows, and a lot of them were um, you know just static recurves or just stat, you know out of one piece fiberglass. And then there was those old long bows hanging around, but it just seemed like we always had bows, and um, we were. We were hunting gophers and frogs and anything we could shoot at, you know. And I remember the expensive wood arrows were thirty-five cents, and the cheap ones were twenty-five cents. Mm. See, and that's made-up arrows. That's finished fletched arrows, right? Yeah, yeah. And they had the they had the um, bullet type points that were they were just crimped on the end of the arrow shaft. But that's uh-huh. that's what we had, and and nobody's. Um, I don't want to get drifting too far, but we'd heard rumors about this guy that he lived at Big Fork, Montana, and he killed mountain goats and mountain lions and bears and stuff. And our parents basically told us that was just a myth because nobody could kill that stuff with a bow. And it wasn't until like <laughs> 20 years later I'd moved away and realized that guy really did exist, and he was Jack Whitney. Oh, very interesting. I've never even heard it that. It was man. true, but but back then the game actually in the in the early sixties in Montana, in that part of Montana, the game population was down pretty low. So people were lucky to get a deer or elk with a rifle, you know, and just if like I I'll, I'll say it again, everybody you know, all the kids had bows, but no we didn't know a single soul that had the bow on it or had killed anything with a bow. So this Jack Whitney character, he was a uh, he was a uh, elder of yours, and he was bow hunting in in the area of Montana when you were growing up. You didn't know him, but he was kind of this mythical creature that was like the lone bow hunter. Is that right? Yeah, and he, I think I don't, I would guess he probably built his own longbows. And I actually met him years later at an NBA banquet, but he was. He was killing mountain goats in the early 60s, but back then there was a goat area that was an unlimited area. He could get a tag every year, but but he was basically a, a myth or even a god up on his mountain, you know, that we'd never heard about it. And our only source of information was the herder's catalog, you know. Wow, that's pretty neat. <laughs> that's really cool. So uh, did bo- did Montana have a bow season at this time, or...? A bear season? Uh, a, a bow season? Um, archery? Archery season? I I think they did. But see, there was also several early bull elk seasons back in the, like the Bob Marshall Wilderness. So the so most of the guys, there would be an early bull elk season, so guys, you know, were back hunting then and that stuff. But there, there actually was, I think, there was a bow season, but we never even realized it, you know, that was so far out of our grasp, you know, when we were little kids. And then by the time I was in high school, I had, I had moved to Lewistown, Montana. Okay. In the center of the state. So when did you start taking your bow hunting serious? Um, I started actual bow hunting. Um, I think it was my junior, sophomore, junior here in, in high school. But we didn't have a clue. There was no information we knew about. But by the time I was a senior, I was there was me and one other kid in the high school that bow hunted. And we would bow hunt every weekend, but we had no clue what we were doing. But we were still out there. 
And I was starting to get pretty serious about it, even as a senior in high school. And, and that's in the Lewistown area? Yes. And there was an old yes. faction of bow hunters there that had been around since, I'm going to say, the 50s. And they were all pretty old then, but those guys had all, they'd all taken a couple deer apiece or so, you know, but nobody around there, no residents had killed an elk. And I was actually one of, in 1976, I was actually one of the first residents of that area. Non-resident or two had got one, but I was one of the first residents of that area, not to brag that it that ever killed a bull elk with a bull. Oh, that's very cool. That that was back when you you made the newspaper if you shot a bull elk with a bow and arrow, wasn't it? Insane, yeah, it, it was insane, and 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 then right after that, it just more people and more people. And the one thing about Central Montana at that time, there weren't many elk, and the areas were basically limited draw for rifle, but they were wide open for bow season. So in a very short time, um, once people started realizing that you could actually go out and kill an elk with a bull, um, it just bombshelled. We had, and I'm not saying it was really crowded back then, but we actually had um, just a ton of bull hunters. You know, not not yes, what the numbers are today, but that area, because even the ranchers and the landowners realized, hey, I can put in for 10 years and never get a rifle tag. Or I can go get a bow and hunt every year. So it actually promoted, you know, that limited draw area that was wide open to bow hunters actually promoted bow hunting. And and this is the mid seventies? Yes. In the mid seventies. And so you've got the advent of the, the compound bow. I I guess uh what were you shooting wheels at that time when you got that first elk or, or were you no, traditional from the beginning? Um, see, when I was growing up, a laminated recurve, you know, because nobody had much money and they didn't want to depend on, parents didn't want to spend it on frivolous stuff. And a laminated recurve when I was a kid was almost like a Fenwick fly rod. It was an unattainable goal. Uh-huh. And then I bought a used recurve in high school, an old Ben Pearson recurve. It was my first laminated bow. And I think I, I got three deer with it. And then the the compound came out and they were the old four wheelers and you know there was just this is the new thing so actually for about four or five years i actually hunted with a compound and um the thing was is you know that old recurve i had had the trajectory of a rainbow and here's a you know four and those old compounds would they shoot 190 feet a second maybe yeah, it wasn't a but big jump. It was jump. just amazing the difference the arrow, the way the arrow flew out of those, and we just couldn't believe it. And then um, later on in the late seventies, these guys in Western Montana, they were shooting. You know, they were a bunch of recurve shooters that I knew over there, and I was just, you know, I'm a, I'm still a dumb twenty one year old, you know, and twenty two year old or whatever by then, and I'm going, what's the deal? What's the deal? And they said. These damn recurves these guys are building, the one Bob Savage is building, shoot 200 feet a second, which actually would outshoot most of the compounds then. Yeah. And and then I was getting, then they started making them to be taken down and stuff. And I, I, and I, and I wanted to, you know, I thought, you know, everybody wanted to be like Fred Bear back then. And 
I'm still in my early 20s, and I thought, you know, if you want, if you want to be like Fred Bear, maybe we should start shooting Fred Bear's equipment, you know? And they came out with the takedown recurve and stuff like that, and I just I switched then and never looked back. Nice. What were you doing uh, at that point in time in your life, in your early 20s? What were you doing for a living, and were you... Well, actually, I went to college, um, what was it, in 74, and then I came back, and worked out in the woods for a while, thin and timber, and I got a job at a sporting goods store, and that's kind of how, and I could, you know, and here, the compound was a new thing, and I could get one at a discount price, so for a couple years there, I worked in a sporting goods store. Okay. And they had, at one time, they probably had one of the largest archery departments in the state. I mean, it was even bigger than most pro shops. Oh, that's pretty cool. I imagine you met quite a few guys working there. Um, there was, but there was only like two of us working in the sporting goods part of it. It was kind of a junior department store type thing. Right. I, I, I meant like bow hunters coming in and out of there. I'm, I'd imagine you probably made made some acquaintances through that connection. Yeah. And I remember they had just got in. It was right before I went to work there when the compound was first coming out. They had like... 10 or 15 of those, um, the bear takedown with the metal riser mm-hmm. and they couldn't get it. They couldn't even sell them. Giving them away. Yeah. And years and not too many years within 10 years of that, Paul Schaefer was making the, um, his first bowls other than his first one piece bowls basically were, you know, he got with Bob Savage with the Savage Deathmaster and he was making them kind of like that. And then he started making, he wanted to do a takedown. So his first takedowns, he was making limbs that would fit the bear riser. Mm-hmm. And once he started doing that, you couldn't hardly find a bear riser in the state of Montana. Mm. People were just buying up, up like mad so they could put those limbs on them, you know? So, uh, you knew Paul Schaefer then at that point or? Um, at that point, not quite, but within a, I met him like in the really early eighties. Okay. It was just within a year or so after that. Did you? He was uh, in the MBA, but you know, we, you know, Montana is a big state, but we'd been, you know, it's kind of gathering at the tribes at the MBA banquet every year. Okay. Dad, did you, uh, go on to spend any time with Schaefer? Yeah, I hunted with Paul Schaefer quite a bit. See, we'd go up there. Um, I had my own lion hounds, and we'd um, we'd go up there and stay at his house, and then that kind of developed into he started just going out with us all the time, and and um, he and I ended up being pretty good friends there. And we hunted we hunted elk together and lions and antelope and stuff. Uh, would you mind sharing maybe a uh, a little story about you uh, a t- some time you spent with Paul? Uh, I'm trying to think of one. I, I used to tell Paul Schaefer stories at the NBA banquet every year when we gave out the Paul Schaefer award. Okay. Yeah. We'd love to hear one. Um, let me see. Here's a e- pretty easy one. Um, he and I were hunting elk one day and we were up on a ridge and it was towards, it was, the season was winding down and we should have just been meat hunting. We were kind of, but then we kind of 
we're each puffing our own chest up, and we went. It was the first day of the hunt, and we hiked up this ridge that I'd killed elk on before, and we bugled in a spike. And this spike, basically, within 20 yards, walked a whole circle around both of us. It was like the wind didn't even matter. And, you know, if either one of us by ourselves at that time of year probably would have shot the elk. But where he was there, and I think, oh, I'm not going to shoot a spike in front of Shafe. And he's probably thinking, oh, I don't want to shoot this spike for me because it's the first day of the hunt. We're going to be out hunting together for about 10 days. So this spike, we let it walk, and we go a little further up on the ridge. And I suppose we were bugling for about, I don't know, 45 minutes or so, and never heard an answer. And down through the thick timber, I just get a glint of an antler. And I motioned to Shafe that there was an elk there. And he kept bugling, and I was kind of cow calling. And finally, the elk answered. And, um, it started coming in, and then it hung up, and Chafe, you know, be, being a good guy, and he wanted a big bull, and and anyway, but he backed off just a little bit, so it sounded like the elk was backing off, and the elk came, and something was wrong, and it didn't it didn't want to come in, and then he backed off some more, and it came in, and um, anyway, it was broadside shot and it was down through the trees about 50 yards and I was shooting one of Paul's bows then at about 80 pounds and I pulled that thing back and um it was downhill and it was just a little further than I figured it was not as far as I thought or whatever but anyway I sailed this arrow just right perfect as far as left and right right over the top of the yolk's back and he ran off you know and mm. I went back and up the ridge to Shafe and I said um, oh, well, you know, I shot high. And he says, everybody misses. And I said, yeah, and you wanted a big bull anyway, didn't you? And he says, Rosie, I think that one would have been plenty big enough. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, there you go. Oh, uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, love to hear those old Paul Schaefer stories. Very cool. Thanks for sharing. So did you have a lot of run-ins with other guys from Montana that are, uh, like, did you know Dick Robertson back in those days? I actually, um, I was in between gigs in my middle forties and I, I knew Dick Robertson for a long time. Same thing. We all knew all the bow hunters in Montana. A lot of them knew each other if they were in the NBA. And I actually, I was kind of in between gigs and, um, Dick's son had just graduated from high school and he didn't know what to do. And Dick was a hundred bows behind. And I actually worked for Dick for about a year building bows. Oh, cool. But you got to realize that, you know, Dick had all the jigs and everything. So basically I, I cut wood and glued wood together, yep. you know, he had all the the jigs and everything set up, you know? Yeah. It wasn't like I became a master bowler. I just, no, yeah. Probably, Helped out. we probably built 200 bows that year. Oh, that's pretty cool. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So Rosie, I was just curious, you're helping uh, Dick Robertson build bows. He was overwhelmed with orders, and that was mid-'90s, you said. Uh, so I'm just trying to put it into historical context. And my my understanding, let's see, 96, I would have been a freshman in high school. But uh, So there was, there was an uptick in traditional archery popularity about those mid-'90s, and but there wasn't the number of bowyers that we have today. Is that right? Like Dick Robertson was kind of... He had been around for a while and was kind of posed for 
really uh, making a ton of bows with that that uptick in traditional archery. Is that accurate? Um, no, it was actually before then. Okay. Yeah, that was. Um, see, there was just a few bowlers in the state, probably in the in the late seventies. You know, it was Schaefer and um, I think Howard Hill Archery was going, and there was a few garage shops. But and then Dick started up. I would say early eighties or so, and um, there was probably you know five or six boyers in the state, you know, and then, um, but, uh, in the eighties, actually the recurve was really starting to take over, not so much the longbows, but the, the recurves were really, really starting to popularize already in the mid eighties. Yeah. And And, then, um, as far as in the area I lived in the center of the state, um, once Dick Robertson moved over there, then then um, there was a fair amount of, of, of guys, you know, early. I think Dick Dick moved in in the early 90s. There was, yeah, I know he did. And that's when there was um, starting to get the surge in longbows. Okay. And also one of the reasons... Shaver, Shaver, I know, never built a longbow, but he was starting to toy with the idea before he passed away, because he he, um, you know, he told me he'd talk to Dick and and a lot of these guys, you know, these new high tech recurves, and guys wouldn't know how to string them and stuff, and and you know, you get a high performance recurve that spits an arrow over two hundred feet a second, and you can actually twist or break a limb on them pretty, you know, some of them pretty easy if they're not strung right. And yeah, like, it's kind of like a refined you know, uh, you, you, uh, race car. You you get the speed, but there's, you know, it can go flying off the track pretty fast too. Yeah. And, and the, the deal is, is most boyers can tell when they get a bow back, if it was a bow building problem or the way the the way the break is, and most I'd say probably eighty ninety percent of the problems are the guy screwed up stringing it, you know, yeah. trying to do the step through approach or something. And this is what Trapper himself is. He had talked to Dick or Dick or had mentioned to him that you know he hardly gets any longbows back from a twisted limb. It's almost impossible to twist a limb on a longbow. Yeah, and then we were. See, I was into lion hunting really heavy for a lot of years, and just really enjoyed it. And um, when did you start lion? When did you get into that? I wanted to talk about that. I had that on my list. When did you get into the hound hunting? Uh, I got into the hound hunting in like 1974 with an old. We had an old turd hound. A buddy of mine did. You know, they had never even seen a lion track. And but anyway, I think I killed my first one in '76. But I, I actually. Started to, I think I owned my own dogs from about 1979 on. Okay, I've seen... But anyway, we were toying, you know, and the takedown recurve was just built for that. And then we thought, man, how cool would a takedown longbow be for lion hunting, you know? Because it's total simplicity. So... Yeah. That was my first longbow, was Dick built me a takedown longbow in like, you know, 1993 or so. Was was he using that hinge system at that time? That that custom machined uh, hinge on the front of the handle. 
Yeah, we were using that. And then a couple of the guys, and um, I had one also, we were we were getting those Bingham kits and finishing them off. I actually had a Bingham kit before I had one of Schaefer's uh, custom bows. But we were up at his house, and he saw, you know, a Bingham kit that I finished off, you know, with a file. That kind yeah. of disgusted me. But the next thing I know, I had a <laughs> – he just he, – he grabbed one of his takedowns out of the shop, kind of a loner, and said, you guys need to pack this with you. Nice. <laughs> he couldn't stand the look of that that Bingham kit that I had that I'd finished off with a wood file, you know. Big, big, uh, chunky, blocky riser on it. Uh, it looked like it looked like a two by four with a little groove <laughs> cut on it, you know. But one thing, those Bingham bows shot a nice arrow. They did. Those those Bingham yeah, kits were not all nice, looks. and and actually Schaefer on his first bow used Bingham hardware and stuff. So, but we had both the, uh, but but we had both the riser with Schaefer limbs and the Bingham kits at first, you know, and then he started making wood handled bows so, so then we all what about we all, Eric? paul started making the wood handled riser you know in the fairly early 80s so then we all went to those okay i didn't believe it but i should have he actually told us he said this wood handle bow will be faster than the bare limbs you know than the the bear the ones for the bear riser he said the wood handled bow riser would be a faster shooting bow and they were everything back then all the hype and even if you watch the compound market it was all speed 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 you know and we were no different with our recurves and longbows we were all you know we got to get the fast bow the fast bow you know and oh i think it's still that way <laughs> well i remember one night we were we were in great falls and they had the great falls art the archer's den was originally run by Grand graneman and they'd have leagues down there and he had just sold out to another guy, and it was it was kind of a meeting place, and we were down there, and it was kind of bad. We were, there was a bar right next door, and we'd been having a few bar, you know, beers in the bar, and this guy had some fancy, expensive recurve. I won't say who, what company produced it, you know, but it, and it was a nice bowl, but he kept bragging it out. And I went and got the Schaefer out of the lion pack, and we said, okay, set up your chronograph, you know, and I think he about kicked us out of his shop. Hmm. <laughs> but there was a little beer involved too, so he probably yeah. had right to do it, but yeah. it didn't come close to the bow that I had. So uh, how about arrows during this time? You know, we've talked about bows from the 70s and 80s and 90s. Uh, what was going through Montana at the time, you know, from wood shafts to aluminums to graphites to carbons? What were you guys using? What was your experience with arrows? Hey, I started out, wood was all we had, and then we went to um, fiberglass, and then there was a few little fiberglass. Most of it was aluminum, and then... Um, we kind of all went to wood at first when we were go okay we're all you know we're going to go total traditional and i got away from wood fairly early and see we were shooting and we also shot veins on our arrows a lot and i know a lot of traditional shooters don't do that but we were i even still do it on a longbow today i use a bare elevated rest yep 
and I have it down way low and I shoot, you know, I live in a rainforest and feathers don't hold up. And then one day I was stalking a bear with wood shafts and feathers, and this would have been like 81 or so. And I was wearing Levi's, you know, which aren't super super quiet, but I hunted Levi's a lot. And my six-arrow quiver brushed against my Levi with fletch, with feathers, and the bear was gone. And I thought, man, that didn't work out very well. And we'd stand halfway between a target and listen to a feathered shaft versus a vein, you know, and the noise they made. So I got away from feathered shafts, and a lot of guys, we were, we were shooting uh, double X-75 aluminums. A lot of the traditional bow hunters were. Even the guys that still used feathers because the double X-75 was like the most expensive shaft, but out of a traditional bow, you almost had to hit like a tree sideways to bend them. You know, you could hit almost Over anything the, straight on and the arrow would still hold up. Larger and diameter, graph, thicker walled. Pardon me? And the, the XX75, that was a larger diameter, thicker walled aluminum? Were those like the 3.8s? The they were shooting. Ones, or? Yeah, and see, we were... We, we tried the Graflex and then they started getting lawsuits over the Graflex. This was way before carbon came out. Yeah. And so, but the graphics, they were heavy, but they seemed to hold up pretty good. But then all of a sudden they became unavailable. I think they were getting lawsuits and stuff. And so we, we went to the double X 75s and they, we were shooting, tw- we were all shooting heavy bowls and twenty two nineteen shaft. And, uh, the, t- the thing about the twenty two nineteen shaft was it, it didn't have the, you know, it was the shaft was no bigger than the the basically the broadhead ferrule, but it had the thick wall. Okay. And with our bows, I mean, unless you hit a rib on both sides, we were shooting clear through elk and stuff and caribou and whatnot, and that was the shaft for a while. And a lot of there were still guys going with the wood, but a lot of those guys were more just for looks, and they weren't the hardcore hunters. And so I'm, I'm not saying every. 2219, that's an 11 seconds diameter, right? Because that's 2264 diameter. I, I think so. I think I that's right. That's 11 seconds. I'm just trying to picture it. I used to shoot a lot of 2018s when I was a kid, and that, just because that, those always seem to fly out of my whatever 45, 50 pound old wing recurve from a garage sale. But uh, yeah. trying to get more familiar with all the old flavors of aluminum, or, you know, they're, they're still available, but. Uh, all the target shooters went to what we called the light logs. They'd use those 24 whatever, 24 13s or something because they could hit a lot. You know, they were the paper punchers because they could hit the line and that bigger shaft yeah, would cut the line, you know. It's a paper yeah. puncher. Right, yeah. But two nineteen shaft out of a 70-pound-plus bow was just, it was just amazing. And like I said... That shaft was so tough, you had to almost ricochet through the woods and hit a tree sideways to break and to bend an arrow. Wow. And I found on wood shafts, I'll go back to wood, my own personal, and, you know, in a perfect world, an animal runs 30 yards and tips over dead. But with a wood shaft, as soon as that shaft broke off on the animal, say it didn't go all the way through and broke off, which a wood shaft breaks off pretty, pretty easy, um, in my opinion, 
your blood trail dries up. And, you, you know, you still find the animal, but it seems like as soon as you find that half a shaft, you're, if it didn't get full penetration, you're, you're losing your blood trail. Where the, the heavy aluminum tend to just bend instead of break. Hmm. And that's just, that's just totally personal, you know. And also, you know, and I've had some fancy shafts and stuff, but you, and you probably know better than I do right now, Look at the price of a real, real good, expensive set of wood arrows. They're, they're, you know, they're ungodly amount of price. For a while, I think we were getting aluminum, so we'd find sales and get them for twenty-five bucks a dozen. You know. Yeah. What's yeah, a, I think I think now though, you can get a good set of uh, wood arrows. I've got a few like our friend Andy Ponce. He makes custom wood arrows, and he's he's right around that hundred and thirty dollar mark and shoot. That's the price for that's the price for the finished dozen arrows, and I know a lot of guys that'll spend that on uh, just a dozen bare carbon shafts. So yeah, I don't see, I don't know if the price difference is is it might have and you can get shifted. it. You guys sell a dozen uh, Sherwood shafts for like forty bucks, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Roughly uh, premiums yeah. parallels are and forty and tapered to fifty. Thing I'd like to add now, you know, and like I said, I'm not totally against wood because we used to buy wood by the hundred lot of cedar shafts, and I can't remember what it was, but it wasn't very much. But you'd you'd pick through those hundred and you'd find, um, I don't know, you'd only find a dozen or maybe 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 two dozen of really straight ones. But what we loved, and we used them for small game and stuff. And what we loved wood shafts for was for carp shooting. Because when we really got into a bunch of carp, who has time to reel your arrow in each time? And we'd shoot those wood shafts, you know, especially the ones that, you know, weren't up to grade and the straight ones. We'd, um, we'd shoot those wood shafts into carp with just a field point. And if you didn't kill the carp, he'd swim around and pretty soon he couldn't fight the wood shaft anymore and he'd just give up. And then we'd just go around and grab all our carp and all our arrows and, you know, we'd take off you know, in a good carp lake, you know, and you'd have 25, 30 wood shafts. So it's not like I, I completely ever quit shooting wood shafts, but it's just for hunting. So that was just no, no line, no float or, or anything, just stick an arrow in them and let them swim off and, and go to the next one. Yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. They're fantastic. You know, cause, sounds like fun. Yeah. If you've ever got into a bunch of carp, I mean, where they're really spawning, I mean, you know, you're, you're all day just reeling in one shot when all the other carp are still swimming by. Oh, yeah, you're messing around trying to get your arrow out of them and re- rewind your line. And... Uh-huh, and, by, and then the messes, too. There's a wood shaft floating, you know. Well, to give, yep. To, yep. Give, uh, to give credit to Carson, since we have him on here, I think uh, wood arrows, I think, have gotten a bad rap because you, you used to have to buy them in those hundred lots and you used to have to pick through them and and, yeah. and and now you you got companies like Sherwood Shafts that's doing all that uh, work for you, and you can actually buy a dozen straightened, tapered, ready to go premium shaft. In my opinion, just as durable as pretty much everything out there. So, Rosie, when when did you decide to leave uh, the Big Sky State and uh, head up north? Um. See, I first bow hunted in Alaska. I wasn't successful when I was like 22 years old. I borrowed $1,500 from the bank and came up and worked for a bear guide 
skinning bears, and then I went out caribou hunting after that. But that was like in 1977. So, and then just to be able to afford to hunt up here, I got hooked up with a couple other guides. Me and a couple other buddies, they loved us Montana boys because we knew how to hunt and we knew how to skin stuff. And back then the pipeline was going. So anybody worth their salt would get a pipeline job. So these guides, they could not find any kind of dependable help that actually knew how to hunt or knew how to skin. So the guides loved us. And so we would work for a couple different guides. And once we got the animals for the clients or in the slack time, we got to bow hunt for free. So I spent most of the 80s up here doing that. And then um, I finally moved up here in 2009. 2009. And um, were you going up there uh, to help do the guide and the hunt? Were you doing that by yourself or were you bringing up some hunting partners with you? It was usually me and another guy. There was a couple of us that would do it and we would both work for the guide, you know. Okay. Yeah, it wasn't like we drug a friend along for free or anything. And then, you know, once I knew these, a couple of the pilots up here, we used to leave Montana, come up, and a fly-out caribou hunt on the Alaska Peninsula then, the going rate was like $300 was all. You could do the whole hunt for flying the commercial airlines and do a whole caribou hunt in the early 90s for 1500 bucks. Wow. Yeah. Right. And were you doing taxidermy? Were you doing taxidermy work at this time? Uh, no, I never started taxidermy until I suppose it was the the early nineties. And for me, taxidermy was just a continuation of the price, the process. Plus, my taxidermy bill was getting pretty high, and uh, you know, it's it's like you know, you get arrows and you sharpen the broadheads, you fletch your arrows and. Taxidermy for me was just a final process of the hunt. You know, you mount your own animal. Right. That makes sense. Um, so what what are the animals you you were at this point like most passionate about going after? Um I've wasted way too much time on doll sheep and grizzly bears. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, but caribou was the mainstay. We were always getting caribou, but I I, I I was so, you know, and the grizzly bear out there, when he knows you're hunting, he was the smartest animal out there. You know, but um, I just spent way too much time doing that instead of hunting moose and stuff. But we'd always kind of finish out with a, with a caribou. Did you ever take a, a grizzly or doll sheep? No, I have not. I've had some bad luck and a, a couple misses, but it just it just has been my nemesis, you know. Yeah. For sure. And now that I'm that I'm older, right? Uh, I um, I, I there's a special archery area by Anchorage, and it's a really neat area. And I've only drawn once in the last ten years, and I had a had a good hunt, and didn't get a sheep, but had a good hunt. But that's cool. that's is basically that, is that that big blue that big blue lake right outside Anchorage. Yeah. I, I got to watch last some of those doll sheep this last fall when we were, we just did a one day hunt after we got back from our, our moose hunt float. We had a day to kill. And, uh, so we went up there with our moose tag, just poking around on, uh, the other side of the lake from those doll sheep, but got to glass them up. And that was pretty neat. Uh, see, see that many sheep. On yeah. The rocky yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a really neat area, but see, I'm, 
65 now and have two middle knees. So it, I don't, I don't get, I still get around, but not near like I used to, you know, when I was in my twenties and thirties and forties. Uh, did you, uh, spend, spend any time hunting the, uh, Sitka blacktail deer? Yeah, I spent, I spent, I think every day of the year I'm thinking about Sitka blacktails one way or another. Oh man, I'm, I love blacktail deer. Tell us, See, tell can, us a little um, bit about it, about uh, how you feel about them and what your thoughts um, are. You know, there's no special bow season on the island, but we got a long bow season. And I basically hunt them out of tree stands later on, just like you'd hunt a whitetail. Okay. And you can spend a lot of time in a tree stand before you get a blacktail. And, but I just love it. And the limit, there's a very... Like right now, if you're a resident of the island, you can shoot five. Oh wow! So and I, I don't always shoot five, but do you um, start do you start tree stand hunting them in that uh, pre rut like October Halloween time? And are you how um, I I start usually I start in mid October and yep. then I go clear through November. But our season lasts up through December. But these um, blacktail are very nocturnal. Yep, and um, so they're, they're frustrating, but they're fun. And I'm just having a riot with them. And I, um, I've got a lot of them. I've never went a season without getting one. Yeah. I've, I've logged, you know, a hundred hours in, in a tree stand before getting a shot at a blacktail here on the Oregon coast. So I, I understand the frustrations. They're very nocturnal and elusive and, uh, which makes them so special. Uh, I think of our blacktails here in Oregon being really strongly nocturnal due to, hunting pressure is there a lot of hunting pressure on that island you're, where you're hunting them or or uh, other predator pressure bears or what do you think keeps them nocturnal? yeah there's a lot of wolf pressure in there you know the wolf. the greenies almost had they tried to say the wolf was a separate species because it was on the islands which it's not but oh, yeah. um we came just inches away from they were trying to put the wolf on the endangered species. I think they've tried three different times. And so they had oh, a real nice. low quota on the wolves for a few years. And I mean, they've really knocked the blacktail population back and enough people are screaming. They finally liberalized it up a little. So they, and then the black bears, um, even the fish and game says the black, the, the black bears kill 40% of the fawns in yep. the first three weeks of their lives. Yeah, I believe that I've seen that. So, right. so with uh, with your blacktails, how are you? Uh, imagine some scouting uh, boots on the ground. Like, how are you choosing your stand locations? Tell us, you know, a little bit about uh, about how you okay. am. Um, there's deer trails everywhere, but the bucks seem to travel the edges of the muskegs almost like a whitetail. Say you take a Midwest whitetail. He doesn't go along the edge of the field. He just goes inside the timber and right along the edges. And blacktails do that, and they go down old roads. A lot of that traffic is nocturnal, closed roads. But they will rub, just like a whitetail. They don't seem to scrape. So I look for rub lines and scrapes and just heavy concentration of deer trails, basically like you would a whitetail. And um, they... Um, do you set I, your do you set your stands up before season, or do you hang your stand the day you're going to hunt, or um, you have, have multiple areas because you never know. I've had one area hot one year, and then um, see if we have snow up high, 
you have three times the amount of deer. There's deer at ele- every elevation. So if there's no snow, you have deer scattered everywhere. If you have snow up high, you basically got two to three times the amount of deer in your area right. than normally live there. Okay, so migration. It's really dependent on that. So, And what I do is I have several stands out in different areas all ahead of the season, and then okay. I um, I sit in my favorite spots, and I have spots that you swear you couldn't sit in that without seeing a deer by the sign. And it happens, and I give a stand like two years, a location, and if I haven't had a buck encounter in two years, I just scrap that area no matter how much the deer sign is. And I don't use trail cameras all that much because in this rainforest, um, they get waterlogged, and then the wind blows, and you get 500 pictures of a branch blowing. Right. And I, I, I know a, guy, a lot of guys that they're rifle hunters, but they use trail cameras all over, and, and they have bucks that they've never seen in the daytime on yeah. a trail camera. For sure. Do you do you do any calling? Um, yeah, and like last year, I can honestly say I never called a deer in. Some and it's crazy. Some years it works pretty good, and some years not. And or, the best call, I've rattled them in, I've grunted them in, but the best call is just a real, real low fawn or doe bleat. Yeah, I've heard that. I've called them in blind and I've seen them and called, but I've seen them and act like they didn't even come to call. And, um, now a lot of, you know, the gun hunters, they see a clear cut and they wail on a call, like a predator, just screaming. And all that does is get a deer to stand up maybe or run the other way, but they see it. But as far as for bow hunting, you're basically trying to sound like a doe to call it in, you know, I'm having so much fun with these blacktails. I'd be hard pressed to go any place in the first two weeks in November. Yeah, I, I feel you. Are, are these, uh, are these either sex tags or are buck only, or are you just filling the freezer with meat or, or no, I don't. Or? I know uh, if you're a resident, you can shoot one doe, but we have such a, it's a, it's a different, it's not like Montana where you had 500 does and three bucks, you know, cause it's so old. Yeah. Um, honestly, most of the people, local people will not shoot a doe and I got an old doe in my yard that comes in and she's been here seven years and usually has twins. Well, how many deer is that down the road? You know? Yeah. So most yeah. people, you know, don't shoot a doe and I've even limited myself and a lot of other, a lot of the rifle hunters. I don't, I don't even know any bow hunters anymore on the Island. Um, I don't shoot spikes anymore and I never have shot a doe on the Island or in Montana. I'd shoot two or three does a year, you know? Sure. Yeah, it's tough with black okay. with, with blacktail deer. I had a tag that I could have shot a doe with a special uh, uh, draw tag in Oregon, and it could have been a doe or a buck. And it's like, man, there's just not enough blacktails to support shooting a doe. Yeah, and and you know, say it. You tell a guy down the road that doe, it has you know, it has twins and. You know, 50 yeah. 50, you're going to have another buck. You know, you shoot that bull, you know, and especially now when the population's kind of on a decline because right. of the wolves. It's like, you know, you, you got to look at three years down the road if you shoot the doe. And most, most guys do that. Most of them do. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with shooting does when you're, like you said, when you're in Montana or Kansas or somewhere where you got Texas, where you got a large population. But when you're, when you're hunting these blacktails, they're so finicky and their population. 
uh, is historically always low. I mean, they get some some uh, ebb and flows there, but yeah. Have and you? We even have those. Okay. And I'm I'm the only bow hunter of it, but we even say if you if you shoot a spike, we pull your man card. Right. Yeah. And there's not <laughs> not not a lot of meat there. Um, are you are you have you been over and hunted them at all on, on uh, Kodiak? Um, I hunted Kodiak the first time back in the nineties and I went with, I actually went with Doug Borland and Thomas and Borland hadn't been to this area in five years and there was no snow that year. And he didn't realize how popular bow hunting or how popular blacktail hunting had become. And, and it was ridiculous. There was deer there, but I mean, you needed a 243 to get one. Okay, a lot of people. I think on the whole hunt, you know, when I went there, I'd never been there, and all my buddies had got four bucks, you know, and I bought four tags, and I think Doug and I, out of the four of us, I think Doug got a deer and I got a deer, but it was. And then the second time I went to Kodiak, a guy with me had a bear tag. He had drawn a bear tag, so we went to Kodiak, and I told I told him, I said, I and I know there's different areas in Kodiak. I talked to Bob Amin, and he tells me about some of that in the south end of the island. But where this bear tag was, in the first afternoon, I realized I had more deer within a mile of my house than the whole hunting area that we were looking at. Oh, yeah. So Kodiak, it just it just really depends on where you're at. But if, if I guess at the south end, you know, where they don't get as much winter kill, there's there's you know, pretty doable populations down there. But right now, you know, I got, I got all kinds of deer to play with right here and potentially bigger deer too. Yeah. I've heard POW has potentially bigger deer and the population is generally more, more stable. You know, the, the rifle hunters, which is what most guys are. You look at some of their racks on their garages and stuff. It just blows your mind and they're still killing deer like that, you know? Oh, I, I gotta ask, Rosie, how how many bucks have you uh how many blacktail bucks have you mounted up? And I, I guess of your own years. taxidermy work, uh how many how many do you, how many do mount, you know, blacktail mounts do you have? How many that I've shot? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in the last ten years I've shot I think thirty three bucks. Oh. oh wow. Man, I need to move to Alaska. Good eating too. Nine, I think. I average, I average three bucks a year. Very cool, and it's hard and to beat. Limit, the limit is five. It's it's hard to beat blacktail backstraps too. Yeah, now I have got a few of these in peak rut that they're just about like a Montana high mountain juniper buck in the peak rut. Little oh, deer. Okay. I have got a couple that. The they were just other than burger were almost unedible. Oh, okay. But the the closer towards the mid to the end of October, the better. So and then I, we do have our summer alpine hunt, also. Yeah, do you participate there? And it's it's a pretty physically challenging hunt getting up into the alpine, and it's. It's like all Alaska game. It's almost a joke with a rifle, but undoable with a bow, if you know what I mean. Like, it's easy to see a moose or a doll sheep or grizzly bear, but then closing out to get 
25 to 30 yards becomes almost impossible. Yeah. And blacktail and the rain and the vegetation are the same way is you're, you're in open country. And I mean, to see them, you know, you know, 200 yards away is nothing, but trying to close that gap in that white, you know, more open country, it's tough to get a good bow shot on a big buck in the Alpine a lot of times. Yeah, I can imagine for sure. Not undoable, but it's tough. So, what is your uh, what's your equipment look like now nowadays when you're headed out to hunt blacktails? What what are you taking a field? Okay, for? I use a I use a takedown longbow, a sixty two inch, and it's sixty five pounds. Made by whom? It's actually made by. It's sold by Alaska Bowhunter Supply. Okay. In the first four years I was here, I had an old, the recurve wasn't that old. I had two longbows and a recurve break on me. And I think it's the constant humidities. Okay. And I'm, I'm pretty rough on equipment. And, you know, and, and that's one of the reasons I went to Carbon Arrows is because you can about drive over your pack or something when you travel and stuff and your carbons, carbons are a tougher arrow. And I shoot Carbon Arrows and usually uh, Zwicky Eskimo or Delta out of a tree stand, I usually shoot the Delta if I'm not in a tree. Eskimo, and then that or I bought up all the old Blue Bear Razorhead stainless steel. I, I really I like those. those. They're basically, a, you know what, a, a Magnus Stinger. Okay. Oh yeah, those old blue razor. Or, yeah, yeah, those those ones with the solid ferrule and the vents. Yeah, but they sold it about the fifth the price. So I had guys all over rummage sales and stuff, and I've actually got quite a collection of those blue stainless bear razor head. And then, like my wikis, I um, I just lined my quiver with Vaseline, you know, to keep the rust off them. Mm-hmm. Yep. Off all my arrows, and that seems to work pretty good. And I do, like I said, in the rainforest, use plastic fletch. What about um, rain gear? Do you use rain gear or just wear wool? Or what? what do you, what's your approach there? Up here, you'd get so wet in wool. I use I use rain gear. I use fairly lightweight, you know, as an outer shell. Mm-hmm. And also, um, one trick that is a total game changer up here, because, you know, you're talking 140 to 200 plus inches a year. And for the average person sitting in that kind of rain all day, and the the, the rain doesn't deter these blacktail one bit. No, it gets the them cold, up and moving, right? Yeah, it doesn't phase them. No. In a torrential downpour, I watched a buck walk right in the middle of a muskeg, not even under a tree, and lay down and take a nap. Yeah. And one thing I started using was a tree stand umbrella. Yeah, me too, yeah. And it is huh. it doesn't spook them. It's a total game changer. I'd never even heard of anybody using an umbrella. Yeah. Tree stand. But, yeah. Uh, I use just a regular umbrella. They don't spoke, spook of them. And a, a good tree stand umbrella, and they don't weigh that much. And it's just been a total game changer for me. Yeah, definitely. Now, that's a specifically designed umbrella for tree stand hunting? Yeah, specifically for tree stands. Huh. Yeah. Now, now, have you noticed with windstorms knocking a bunch of limbs down on the ground that are covered in lichen, do you think that really gets those bucks moving and munching the, that windfall lichen? Yeah, and it's it's crazy because you see some of that lichen almost hanging at ground level, 
and they don't seem to eat it, but those branches, and it's the same with whitetail hunting, uh, you know, in Montana. I've, you cut limbs down one day to put a tree stand up, you know, if you want to move your stand. The next day, there's a deer eating it, or in the snow, they've been eating it, and they, they, they do, they really go for those limbs that get knocked down. Yeah, they, they it do. seems like there's like a, a, a 10, 12-hour period of them drying that they become more uh, interested, because I know exactly what you're saying. I've gone cut shooting lanes and set up a stand, and then the next day I'm in the stand, and I got does feeding on the branches, and they could be feeding on all kinds of same stuff, but it's that it's that it's been dead for ten, twelve hours. That yeah. they, that they're interested in it. Yeah, they do the same thing up here. And why they don't? It looks to me like the same stuff is growing on the side of the tree within right. reach, and they don't it, seem to bother. Exactly. Out. Yeah, I've noticed, right, I've noticed the same same thing with them. Yeah, they are yeah. a trip. Um, yeah, those black, that, that's interesting. Cause I was just in a blacktail area and I kind of, I, I, it's an area I like to go stump shoot and there's some swimming holes there and I, it's just a beautiful area to go shoot. And, uh, I was noticing the other day how the sides of the trees were covered with just what to me looked like, you know, great browse for, you know, lichen just up and down the side of the trees. And I use that as a way to say, oh, there's just no deer in this area. So maybe that's not valid. Maybe they just, they like, they like the stuff from higher up, or, or like James said, it's been... Oh, it's, it's the exact same thing. Out. It doesn't make any sense to me. But. Yeah, I think they like it when it's been huh. removed from the tree for, for a short period of time. Yeah. Yeah, so... Interesting. Yeah, blacktails are got a special place in my heart. Here in Oregon, we only get one deer tag a year, and I like to hunt mule deer in September, and if I don't feel that, ta- if that tag isn't notched, then I get to hunt blacktails in November... And man, it's hard. It's hard to go hunt those mule deer when when you start thinking about November because it's so special. Uh, yeah, it's so special. Um, I'll definitely uh, be headed up your way to hunt blacktails within the next few years. It's high on my bucket list uh, to hunt those sick of blacktails. Um, I'm just um, blacktail crazy. The thing is, is up up here. You know, I can't. you most of my buddies. I've invited them up here fishing and hunting, and they they don't come because they go, man, it, it takes me a thousand a thousand dollars just to get there. And I said, yeah, yeah. So what? But anyway, um, I can't guarantee, but um, if you do come, I got you know, I got a place to stay, and we actually have a we have a cabin that um we own with. Lisa's folks, I did all the work on it and stuff, and now we're paying for two places. So actually, to make if we're even to keep the guest cabin, we gotta try to rent it out to some hunters and fishermen, and mm-hmm. it's much like two hundred and fifty bucks a week. Now, doesn't uh, Don and Lori Thomas have a place near you? Pardon me. Doesn't Don and Lori Thomas have a place near you? No, they they sold theirs. Oh, they sold theirs. Okay. They been they sold it about four or five years ago. It was same thing. They had a nice place, but basically, all he came up for anymore was a little of the steelhead fishing and stuff, and um, some salmon fishing in the fall. So it's cheaper for him to come up steelhead fishing just to rent a lodge, you right. know, a place out of a lodge that has a vehicle and stuff. Right. Right. You 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 grew up doing some some hunting and fishing with Don though I suppose I've I've heard. What's that? You've grown up uh, doing some hunting and fishing with Don I suppose. 
Well, probably more. Yeah, that's what I've Not heard. Not the expensive <laughs> travel places, but day-to-day more. Yeah. Yeah, but, I've, um, I've seen where he's mentioned you uh, in the past about hound hunting and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, we... We ran around together, you know, not so much up here when, you know, now that we don't live apart, but we, we hunted together for about 25 years, I would guess. Okay. Well, you got a, a little story you could tell us about hunting with Don Thomas? I don't want to incriminate him. <laughs> <laughs> Give us some dirt. Give us some dirt. <laughs> no, we actually, we were, we were up here. And we were driving, it was pouring rain, and we were up in a, actually in an alpine that a road went through, uh, you know, not uh, just a muskeg alpine that a road went through. And I get the glasses out, and here's a spike blacktail buck, and, you know, elite, you know. And so, and this is in my early stages of blacktail hunting, and we hadn't seen anything hiking around or anything. And he's Rosie, if I would, I'd go shoot that buck, Rosie. He basically talked me into this. Well, there's no guarantees. Well, I went down there and shot this deer down in this hole, and you know it worked out. I got within I think 30 yards of him, and I shot and I got him. Well, I'm dressing this deer out, and I look up. And here's another blacktail buck just kind of watching me. And so I get this thing and got it out, and I just kind of back off and beat feet and get clear back up to Thomas. And I said, okay, wise guy, I said, you said you'd shoot that buck down there. There's another one down there. Get your ass down there. And, and we get down there, and we didn't get quite to mine. And, um, all of a sudden, here this black-tailed buck shows up. I mean, I've never had, that, had anything like that happen on this island since then. And Don, to his credit, Don shot and got the buck. So now we had two of them to get out of there. Ah, uh, double. The best. And for some Sounds reason... like a good day in the woods. I don't know what the deal was, but for some reason, I said, I'm man, it's time to bone these things out. And I don't know, he had a brain fart or something. He didn't want to bone. No, no, we can't do that. We'll just drag him uphill. And my God, I did. I should have, I should have put my foot down. <laughs> but anyway, we were beat by the time both of us got those two deer back to the road. Yep, we were beat. Oh, that is so cool. So there you go. But it, it was, uh, it was kind of, kind of comical when I said, okay, wise guy, there is another buck down there for you. Oh, that's great. That's a really but, good story. But we did. We got two black tail bucks, so what the hell. But we were that dragging them both back uphill to the road was uh, insane. Well, is there, uh, before we move on from black tails, is there anything else, the, any tips or tactics or anything that you can think of that you want to share with other black tail hunters? Um. Oh, I don't know. I just, I, I like spring bear hunting quite a bit because it's something to do. And we got a ton of bears here, you know, and you can be really selective. Yeah, and it helps, would, the, helps the black like, population out as well. Oh, it's insane. Because, see, they, same thing, the, the do-gooders, as I call them, they were freaking out. There's too many bears getting killed. There's no bears left, which is ridiculous. And so they 
depleted and tried to get the season closed out and the fishing game, they're slowly increasing it. And um, for some reason, bear hunters had a bad rep on the island, you know, damn bear hunters. But I never, not one person ever denied any of their money. So they cut the spring bear season back to like, at one time it was 40 permits. And I think the fall bear over the salmon streams was like 20 permits. And a couple of these lodges, they didn't realize the economic impact. A couple of these lodges, they about put them out of business because they were booked from the 1st of May clear through the 30th of June with bear hunters. Yeah. And then same with the, the fall bear hunters. So they really restricted it. Now people are just funny like that. You know, the same ones that there was too many bear hunters. Now there's too many bears, you know, but there are a lot of bears up here. And so you do, you go after the bears in the spring. Is that a, a bait hunt or a spot and stock or? Basically I, I'm all, I like tree stand hunting, you know? Yep. And I, I bait, I go, I walk up some roads, but basically I, I sit over a bait and just relax and enjoy it. Yeah. And you can bait in the spring? Yes. In the spring, but not in the fall. Not in the fall. Okay. Awesome. And we're allowed, we're allowed two beers if you're a resident of this area. Okay. Um, and Rosie, you said, uh, the cost to get up there was about a thousand dollars for most guys. Are you, are guys... You have to take a ferry out. You fly up to the mainland and then take a ferry out. Is that how it's um, done? Or take the ferry, or um, the float plane comes right to the dock. We used to, you know, tell everybody just come to the right to the dock with a float plane. But um, since we had those last year, we had like three different float plane crashes in the area with over on by out of Ketchikan with multiple fatalities and. A couple of these float plane operators, they basically went out of business because the insurance climbed so high. So we, oh, wow. and then their prices went up. You know, it used to be for 130 or 40 bucks, you'd hop on the float plane and you'd just be right here from Ketchikan in, you know, 40 minutes. But you can either, you can, and then there's a, in Kowak, right in the middle of the island, there's a wheel plane service. It's more expensive, but they're really um, gearing up now. They got a paved strip there. Picking so, up the flack for the float plane. So, for a guy from the lower forty-eight that's wanting to come up with his uh, with his longbow and do an Alaskan hunt, do you recommend doing caribou first or Sitka blacktail first? What, what what's your recommendations? I used to always recommend caribou on the Alaska Peninsula, but then the population crashed out there because caribou. You know, those flight service would basically land you where the caribou was, but that those days are gone. And the bad thing now in the interior, the, the caribou price has just skyrocketed. And, the you know, I got spoiled. I knew the guys, even the pilots I knew that knew them from the old guiding days. And you wouldn't land a plane unless there was animals in the area. Well, now these, these um, fly-out services, they fly into the same airstrips. They're not going to chance tearing an airplane up on some real remote airstrip. And it's kind of sketchy for a guy to do it on his own. You'd almost be better off if you had the time to drive up and do the pipeline caribou hunt. Okay. You're going to see a lot of bow hunters, but just for a do-it-yourself hunt where you make your own luck, I've done it a couple times. That's not a bad hunt. And then the other way would be you'd come to this island or Kodiak on a blacktail hunt. Yeah. Would and, be. And then I also. Um, and when's the best in, time to do that blacktail hunt? Yeah. 
What, what's the best time of year to do that blacktail hunt? Um, if you really like to hike and run around the hills, it would be that August hunt. Okay. But if you if you're more into a tree stand and stuff like that, it'd be right around that first ten days in November is the best. Okay. That's uh, I've actually got plans to go up there with a couple other guys, Kodiak Island, last week of October, first week of November. It's going to be my first time hunting thick of blacktail. Uh, pretty excited and about that. Are they taking you to the south end of the island? That, I'm not sure. One of the guys who kind of organized it wants to also have that caribou tag in his pocket for the reindeer out there. Yeah. And I'm not sure what side of the island that is, but I think that's, uh, that's all in the south end, and from what I know, that's okay. that's where I wanted to go on that Borland hunt, because I, I, all those guys had just come back from the south end, and, um, you know, for 75 bucks more, the pilot would have, a piece, the pilot would take us down there, and we had to go to the old hot spot, but there was guys just dumping rifle hunters off left and right on top of us, you know, and it was a, it, things just change every year, but that, that south end from the guys that I talked to to hunt at, it's by far the best. And that's where your caribou are, and also um, the they don't get the winter kill out on that end. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah I, I think the plan is to get dropped off up on top in a, on a big lake. Uh, I guess that's kind of generally. Yeah, because you don't want the beach. Anything within okay. walking distance of the beach is probably going to be pretty spooky from gun hunters. Okay, gotcha. You know, yeah. just from just from the guys I talk to and have pretty good contact with but for me to go to kodiak would be ridiculous when i got everything right yeah. here you know yeah i want to hunt in both places i want i want to experience kodiak but i really want to try uh pow as well um yeah the blacktails are awesome remember i got a i got a cabin if you want a prince of Wales blacktail hunt okay well uh it's making it a Sounds even, like opportunities knocking james opportunity is a knocking all right. Well, it's no, it's no secret, Rosie, that uh, I know you're not into self promotion, but it's no secret that you killed the world record mountain goat here last year. Yeah. Why don't you uh, maybe tell us uh, from the beginning to end, get the juicy details uh, on uh, that hunt? Pretty much the same as you know that that short you know because I'm not a. I don't want to try to go for a magazine article or anything, so I just gave Pope and Young wanted a, a, a blurb, you know. Yeah. And um, it basically, um, catch a can. We have some registration goat areas over here that up in Alaska, a lot of these areas aren't too far from here, but it's across the channel of the ocean, and they've got to have, you know, bigger boats over 500 bucks, and then airplane rides 18, and you can just, they call it a registration hunt, and you can get a moose or a brown bear or a goat. You just do it online, and you get the permit. But it's it's not, a, it sounds good, but your odds are low, and there's not as many animals. Well, Ketchikan has three special areas right out of, basically right out of town. And the two most accessible ones are, it's about as hard as Oregon sheep tag or something. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. So I've been putting in for about 10 years for the one, for this one, there was only five permits given. So it's like a once in a lifetime type situation. Oh, it's not once in, in Alaska, it's every other year. Oh, okay. If, if you get a permit, you can actually reapply the next year. 
Right, but it takes it took you what you say ten years to draw it. But it took it took me ten years to draw, yeah. and then me and my wife went over there and scouted, and there was a lake. And like I said, I got two metal knees, and there was a like a service trail up to a there was a dam and a water supply area there. It's three miles in, so we just went over there in July and walked into there to test it out, and it wasn't bad. But my God, from the lake, it was just like you almost needed the lake was low, and you almost needed like technical climbing gear just to get up. And I could see goats, and it looked it looked pretty grim, you know, to get to where there was goat type country. I mean, it it looked undoable for me, some of that even in my 20s, you know. And I got asking around and I heard there was an old Boy Scout trail off the pavement, basically at sea level, that got up to some alpine and actually closer to town. And so I decided I'd try that. And, and there was, a friend of mine from there, was five, there was five other hunters on this hunt? Oh, there, there, was, there was there were basically four other guys that had tags. One of them was from the island, and he had got to go. He actually flew a plane into that little lake, and it got more water in it. And he, he said it still took him six hours to get up to where the goats were. And he was a gun hunter, mm-hmm. and he got a smallish billy. And I don't know what the other hunters got. I'd never heard or anything, but most of them, I think, were done by the time October rolled around. Okay. And due to some other hunts I had lined up last fall and some company, I wouldn't get a chance to go till like, the first October. Okay. And um, anyway, so a buddy of mine met me over there, and we, we backpacked up that trail. And it was steep, but it wasn't risk-your-life steep. Mm-hmm. And But it was a steep climb, and it was foggy and pouring rain and... Um, every time I'd get up to think, God, by the topo map, there was two little lakes and it looked like they were just like divots. And I thought they were above, it looked like by the map, they were above the timber line. And I thought, well, hell that, you know, if I can get up to those and go from there. And I kept thinking I was going to top out. And every time the fog had lift, I'd see another row of pine trees, you know, and it's getting later in the day. And I'm like, my God, how far is it up to this thing? <laughs> and finally we hit this knob and there's still timber on it. And I look down below and there's a, one of those lakes below me that totally different than it looked from the map. And we had to beat feet to find one little flat spot that was actually not in the wet muskeg to pitch the tent. And we did that, and then the next day when the fog cleared, my God, from about, I'd say, 400 feet in elevation from our camp, not that close to our camp, but just in Mm elevation-wise, there was goats everywhere. It reminded me of that Square Butte goat area next to my home in Montana that was I put in for 25 years there and never got a goat. I never got a tag. That's the one where Paul Schaefer killed that really big goat. Okay. But it was the same thing, just your odds were just crazy. But it reminded me of that spot, you know. So the so the, so the, the there were just there the, were just goats everywhere. I spotted this one laying down and I got a goat with my bull before and I wanted a I wanted a mature Billy and I thought if it's a mature Billy I'll take it and I he was bedded down in a pretty good spot and I you know, in the glasses, it was still foggy and rainy, but he, I could see he had really big bases. And I had a white, I had a white painter suit on and a white stocking cap. 
And I snuck around and caught up on him. I had it marked. There were some dead trees, and it actually went into stock. I I backed off once. I thought, oh, I'm going either parallel with him or too low, and it's not going to work. And I, so I circled without actually seeing him and just by the landmarks, and then I circled around a big, and I came right down on top of him. And um, he stood up through, and there was a little bush there, and I couldn't get an arrow through there and he was only like oh 15 yards away and then he actually just when he came out of that bush he just bolted almost straight away but by then the arrow was after him you know and it went in and he's so haired up but i you know i knew you know just in him and it was actually a little low in the chest and he went over the edge and i couldn't I couldn't see him and I, I didn't actually, I slipped just, I kind of trotted down there where he went out of sight. And this is all just instantly unless that takes me time to tell you. And I see my buddy down there below. I, I had him below and I said, if I scare this goat off and don't see it, it'll sure to wave me off, you know? And he's sitting there hooking his arm like the goats below me. And it's like, yeah, I know that, you know, well, I didn't know it was right underneath me he'd already stopped and I'm looking down and away. So I, I went up the ridge away figuring if it, you know, if it was wounded, it would be, you know, trying to go uphill and I didn't see it and didn't see it. And then I went back and I realized it was, it was like, I, I was almost, when I looked over the edge, it was almost just right underneath me. He'd stopped, you know, and which was, you know, very few, you know, probably 40 yards from where I hit him, you know, and then I looked over and I could see him and I had to lean way out and kind of twist my bow, you know, can it to the opposite side. He usually would to shoot it. Uh-huh. And then I, and then he started to move and, and I, uh, cause at first all I could see was the hair on the top of his back. And then he was quartering away and I put one basically right in the kidney area angle forward and it went clear through to the flesh and he never really completely regained his feet after that he'd stand up and tumble down the hill and he hit some bushes and i thought he'd stop there and we about that time my buddy he's in really good shape he almost made it to where i was at and i circled around below and the goat basically the dying quivers about the time I figured we we might have to almost try to lasso him to get him off this little thing over the edge. He went, and then we had the, we tried for four or five hours to try to get down to him. And at one point I had to tell my young partner, I said, you got a wife and kids at home. You ain't going any further down this hill, you know? And then we ended up, going down the ridge and taking a completely different, almost, it was a, a different little drainage downhill and going way down and coming back up. And it was steep and side hilling, but there was enough brush and it wasn't, it was fall, but nothing fall and die type stuff for the recovery. And it, we knew it was good. Well, first we tried it and thought, we think we can do this. And I said, I'm taking the pack for the cake and meat. And I said, I'm not even packing my bow down there. That's such a, and you know, it was hand over hand type stuff. And that's the only, that's the only downer to the whole hunt is my bow is up on the ridge for the recovery and the pictures. Yeah. Sounds so, pretty hairy. So what, yeah. So when I recovered the gold, I didn't have my bow with me. 
Darn it. You know, it, was, it was up on the rig. You're right. You know. Yeah. But, yeah, that was the bad thing. I don't have any big hero photo. I, I have with the head and the cape, but as far yeah. as with the whole goat, I with, don't have my bow in the back. Yeah, with your, with your uh, all-white suit on? Yeah, well, by then, the all-white suit was gone. I was okay. down to just I, my man, yeah. I got to ask. Rosie, so the white suit, was that snow camo, or were you being a wolf in goat's clothing? A wolf in goat's clothing. I even, we've used it on Square Butte and other guys, and when I had my other goat, I even have a little leather patch, almost like a little um, Jewish skull cap with two little PVC horns sticking up through that. Nice. Ah, clever. And I, with white goat, and I first wore a gold suit. I I even guided. I was a guide in Montana. I had my own guide license and stuff. And when I went with Schaefer on Square Butte to film, he'd already got his goat, but he um, wanted to go back and get some. His goat happened fast enough. He never got any footage, and he wanted to get kind of a goat video, and he knew I'd been on Square Butte a fair amount in the old days. So he had, we put white suits on, and just hiked back into his goat area to get footage. And it was like when the goats were rutting, and, I mean, it was, we got so close to him, it almost makes the footage look phony. Uh, I don't know where that footage is anymore, but, I mean, it almost looks like, why could you shoot one of them, you know? <laughs> oh, man. Well, I, I don't have any experience with goats. You know, you can't hardly draw a tag here in Oregon, and it's, it's something I don't even dream of, really, because and of goats can be driven. low possibility. You can drive. But I've you seen can, videos, yeah, or guys just like a goat come into kind of their high mountain camp and just, you know, looking for like the yeah. nibble or scrape the I've the been with guys friends area or, and, and guiding guys where you can do a one-man goat drive and drive another goat if you can get below it and the other guy above it. Now, not all goat things work like that. And you can just slowly do a one-man goat drive and drive a goat almost if it looks like you know where he wants to go. And Not every goat is in that possible situation, but if you have that uh-huh. situation and can't get above one, you can drive a goat right into a guy's lap for him. Yeah, I, I blacktails are, are, you know, high on my list, but mountain goats are that special dream animal that I'll probably never get to hunt, but I, I'd like to draw an Oregon goat tag more than a sheep tag i i just love those i'm a sucker for yeah, goat, for, for an all-white cape yeah goats are neat and i like i said i've been on goat hunts since my early 20s but i could you know all those years in montana i got one tag and you know i, I could just never draw a tag but I, i've been out on a lot of goat hunts and they're a they're a pretty fun critter and they can be pretty pretty dangerous and i've had some of the ones that look like they would be in a spot like they would never get hurt or fall or break their horns. And that's the ones that end up breaking their horns and others can be in a real nasty spot and they don't break it. You know, it's just crazy the way goat hunts pan out. Yeah, for sure. So yours fell a a ways and and did not break. Yeah. It went over a thousand feet. Oh my God. It didn't. Now it wasn't out in open. I'm not saying like a thousand feet to the first bounce, but by the time it quit rolling and sliding and falling, see, we couldn't see that. It was just a, it went over the edge in a brushy and we couldn't see down below us. See, we never could see actually where it ended up once it went off that first little thing. But yeah, it was a thousand feet and I was, I was really fortunate that it didn't break its horns. So when you got to him, you knew that that was a mature Billy and that's what, that, that was the, that was the goal. Did you have any inclination 
that you were holding on to the world record archery mountain goat at the time? No, and I'll back up one minute. One thing I didn't, on the way up to do that goat, I wasn't thinking score. I wasn't thinking this is a monster. He's going to get away. That had nothing to do with the whole hunt. I was totally focused on, I want to be on top of that goat for a good shot, you know? So I wasn't even considering that, you know, once I originally decided that's a goat I want to go after. But when we got up to him, I knew he was a big one and figured he would, he was big, but then my buddy kept telling me, and he hadn't been, he'd shot one goat before, but, he's not what you'd call a goat expert. And he kept telling me how big it was. And I think it was cause it was so big around. I didn't realize how long it was. Uh, and, right. you know, I knew it was a big one, but I had no idea it was, it would beat the world record. Wow. That's a, uh... when, when was the previous world record taken? How, how many years prior do you know? Um, yeah, I actually do. It was like, I'm going to say 2000, 12 or so. I think yours beat the, the previous record out by, by one-eighth of an inch. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool. That's, well, Now, final panel, I don't think it did, but by the official score entered, it did. It was a full inch bigger. Okay, a full inch. Okay. By, by, the, by the score that actually, you know, showed up in the newsletter and stuff, you okay. know. Um, is that the only animal you've entered into the Pope and Young books? No, it isn't. Oh, what else do you got in there? There's like, and I'm, I'm not tooting my own horn, but I think the goat made 30 entries. I'm really familiar with the Pope and Young record books. Yeah. Can you explain that made 30 entries? Yeah. I, and what it is, is I know there's a lot of back and forth and some traditional bow hunters are, you know, and some that we both know probably all an outfit doesn't keep score and stuff. But I had a guy, he was one of the old time bow hunters in the country, you know, the, the modern 1900s areas, you know, Ray Torrey from, and he from down California, Doug Kitteridge and those guys really resurgent bow hunting down on Catalina Island and stuff, you know, in the early in the fifties and sixties. And, he kind of talked me into joining Pope and Young on, he was a guide in Idaho and plus he was a, I think he was a records committee chairman, really a nice guy. And he introduced me to Fred Asbill, who's also a really fine individual. Yeah. We've had Fred, um, we've had Fred on. He's a great guy. Yeah. And, you know, so I joined like in 1979 and, um, one of the reasons I'm a member of Pope and Young is, you know, there's, and I might not agree with them on a lot of stuff, but the thing is, is they're preserving the history. Right. And the history is basically, you know, the recurve, longbow, self-bow type stuff. Right. And, and so that's why I can worry about all the other bickering and scorekeeping and stuff aside is because they preserve the history. And one of their main sources of income is entering animals. You have 30 animals in the book. Yes. Oh, oh, gotcha. Now it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. But believe me, they're not all at the top. But that's, that's just my views with it. And I, I went to one convention in my life, and that was way back, I think, in 1980 or 81 in Spokane because it was fairly close to Montana. So do you go to the, the, to the conventions? or? No. I went to that one, and, 
and it was neat. And that, and that was way back when it was hard to top because Fred bear was there and he did a, he told the story about one of his grizzly bears and it just, you know, Glenn St. Charles hardly had any gray hair back then. And it was, you know, that was, how do you top something like that? You know? Yeah, man. And there's that... all us Montana boys, you know, Schaefer and the Wenzels and Scott Kelzer. And oh man. Yeah. We've, We've we've had Scott Colzer on as well. Uh, that sounds like a room full of. Uh, that sounds like a dream event to be at. You had all those guys in one place. Uh, so how do you top that one? You know. Yeah. And you... so and and also now you know and and um, it just for me back then it, it was just it was pretty expensive to go to a convention. So I just thought you know I I've been to one and I'll um I'll just spend the money on a hunt somewhere instead of a convention. Yeah, that's that's how I feel most of the time. Uh, a guy wants to go to all these conventions and all these bow shoots, but at the end of the day, you got to choose your battles wisely. And hunting is definitely the most, you know, important thing to us for sure. Take those, take those hunts when you can get them. But you know, I think for a for a bow hunter, for, you know, no matter what you shoot for a bow, if you if you have one of those conventions fairly close to where you live, it's well worthwhile to go. You know, for sure, definitely. So, what was that like, rubbing rubbing uh? elbows with fred bear and glenn st charles and all those guys uh, at a convention like that was that must have been pretty pretty eventful you know it was you know and i you know i'm not saying i rubbed elbows with fred bear but he was there you know we sat in on the same meeting and you know you know and he told stories and a lot of people he was one thing he was really kind about was anybody that went up to him and wanted a photo with him he would do it you know yeah Cool. And and it was just basically then the Pope and Young Club was only six hundred for a long time. The Pope and Young Club sat at six hundred members, and now it's thousands and thousands. And what the reasoning was that Ray Torrey that I spoke of and Fred Asbill like they explained it to me was, you know, a guy a guy gets lucky. He gets a record book animal. It it makes the Pope and Young. So he he joins the Pope and Young. And he sends in his dues for a couple of years, and then, you know, just fade. He doesn't kill another big animal for a while, and he just kind of drifts through the cracks and doesn't keep his dues up. And there was a real high turnover there, not because they were mad at the club. They just kind of phase out. Right. And I'm sure you know a lot of hunters that they get a couple animals, and then they go golf, and they're doing something else, you know. Sure, yeah. We had uh, Jim, so, Jim Wilhelm. a long time, it just hovered at 600 members, so. You know, it was, and then it was probably more tight knit. You know, and people kind of knew of each other. But now it's like, I don't know, it's several thousand members, which is good because, you know, they get more money, and and they, I, I honestly believe they put most of their money in the right directions. You know. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we had uh, the past president of Pope and Young on the podcast uh, a couple months ago, Jim Willems. Um, he's a great guy from New Mexico and it, it really kind of opened my eyes to the Pope and young club and definitely, um, one that we should be supporting as bow hunters. I, I agree. Yeah. And, and like I say, if you, if you, if you don't want an inner, an animal, that's a personal choice, but that 35 bucks, it goes to support them. And like I say, my whole deal with them is I, you know, the preserving the history. Do you have any uh, blacktails in the book? Yes, I do. I have, I have four. Four blacktails in the book. Uh, in that, for Sitka blacktail, what 
What's big like in the 120 area, 110? Oh, no. I, I'm still waiting for that guy to walk by, and believe okay. me, I've seen a few candies. Yeah. But I'm still waiting. No, I'm I'm pretty much at the lower end of the blacktail scale. What is it, it, it for Sitka? Is it 80 to, to get in? I, I think it's not 75. 75, okay. And I have, I have, I have, I think, three or four of them that I missed like a quarter of an inch. Oh, I call yeah. them... I call them squeakers, and they squeaked in the wrong direction, you know. Squeaked in the wrong direction, <laughs> yeah. And and a four, uh, four points aren't real real common up there, right? A, a buck with four on each side, four by four. Um, they're not real common, but they are. Okay. There's the rifle hunters get them every year. Okay. And the, I don't know with the Oregon blacktail, but the Sitkas, it is really hard to get both sides to match. Yeah, sometimes we, the horns even grow out of their skull, and you know the pedicles are in the same spot, but the horns, one horn will, will will dip at a different angle than the other. Even are your are your Oregon blacktails like that? No, I think they're a little more symmetrical, but I have noticed that in pictures of Sitka blacktails. They're not. Um, and then one thing we get up here, we get the we get almost an orange horn clear to a deep red. Yeah, we get those really pretty colors too from the alders and the firs and the sickas. Yeah. It's yeah. just really wild. The double throat patches, and you do find yeah. some areas where they got that three point genetics, and you just don't see the four point bucks just in pockets. And then you got areas where where they'll have you know non typical or it's the genetics, I guess, vary. From... We have some where I call them one of the biggest blacktail bucks I have seen. Even the ones that I've mounted for other people, it was we have these sometimes these big I call them mutants. They're two points with eye guards. Mm-hmm. And just huge mass, you know, for a blacktail, especially yeah. Sitka blacktail. We, my my friend got up. one with a self bow like that, big, tall, massive, forky, with eye guards that uh, made the books just last year or two years maybe. Yeah, and then we do get a lot that just I don't think they've ever been a four point their whole life. They could live and die and never big one, but we but we do get those some of those just nasty big two points. And up here, see, I'm from Montana where you counted the full side, you know, like right. it was a five by five or five by four. Right. And I used to hunt Iowa where they counted everything, you know, and right. then up here, nobody counts eye guards. Yeah. We, we always prefer to them like uh, a fork and horn with eye guards or a four point. Eye guards, with yeah, eye that's guards. what they do. up. Here. That was yeah. hard to get me used to. Cause I'm a, Hey, it's, it looked like a five point to me, you know? Right. And here we don't, I'd say half the bucks don't even have eye guards. So I think that's kind yeah. of why. And we have that too, where they have just one on the side. Yeah, know? yeah, they're such neat critters, and they're hard to beat when it comes to table fare. It's some of my favorite meat. Period. Uh, how was that mountain goat? Was he was he tasty? Was he good on the table? The meat. It just um pretty darn close to unedible. Really, I've eaten goats from a bunch of different areas in Montana, and maybe one of them was decent. Just. I've even heard that close to the rut, they even secrete something like a, almost a secretion gets in their meat or something. But, you know, you can huh. say what you want, but I've ate goats when I've been starving to death, and they still were hard <laughs> and rubbery. Okay. That's and this one is about as strong. That makes as, me feel better about never being able to hunt them. <laughs> well, you can, we yeah. just mix some, mix, oh, some black, mix some blacktail burger with it, right? Hide. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's pretty awesome. And my, yep. my wife, um, a friend of mine got lucky last year. See, we have special draws in Alaska for like muskox, bison, and all that, which I've yet to draw any of that. But 
uh, one neighbor, his wife drew a any bull moose tag and like i said from here on the island it costs as much for me to go in the interior you could fly up from idaho and do it just as cheap as far as travel wise because see in southeast alaska we're a long way from the interior but anyway they got a moose and a bison both and i asked him last year you want to trade any goat steaks for some of that moose or bison he says i don't think so <laughs> nice try and he says and he says, I'll give you some moose and bison steaks, but you, you, you can keep, <laughs> keep your goat. <laughs> keep the goat. Awesome. Well, how how about cats? You you ran hounds for cats there in Montana a lot. Uh, you got to have a story or two of, uh, I just imagine there's had to have been some sort of interesting, I have know, with the dogs of- getting into it with cats or something. Uh, has to be some adventure there. I have all kinds of cat stories, and you know we all traditional bow hunters more than more than anybody. You know, I call a traditional bow hunter here. I spent half my younger days, you know, as a non-traditional type person, and then to be labeled a traditional, you know, that's kind of wild, you know. But anyway, um, the one thing when we all have our lines in the sand, we won't cross. And one thing I have never hunted a dog with a tracking collar on it. Oh. Yeah, and I'm just opposed to that. To me, and I know I'll get a lot of backlash. It completely ruined the sport, and it was. It became. I saw it became nothing about losing the dog. It was all about getting somebody lazier than hell to a tree. Right. You know, and I've seen guys two days later after they lost their dogs driving all over the mountain range with an antenna looking for their dog still. And I said, if you'd have stayed on the track instead of driven around 20 miles to shorten it up, you could have probably been to the tree and killed the lion and got your dog back. Yeah. That's a lot of flack for that. But the old guys like Ray Torrey and the guys in Idaho, for 200 years, we never needed tracking collars. Right. That's the way I look at that sort of thing. Uh, even training my dog, I thought, you know, it would be a hell of a lot easier with one of these radio shot collars, but... My grandpa didn't have shot. that, and he figured it out. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah I, I'm not talking about the shop collar, the train one. He, to get him to no, I know. Fire. I'm just that's kind of my similar. That's my line in the sand sort of thing. I and can. I was real frustrated training this dog because it's half blue tick hound. I had no experience with hound dogs, and they're they're really hard headed and independent and like to roam. And I thought about breaking down and spending you know a couple hundred dollars on a shop collar, but then I just that was my my reasoning was you know hey my grandpa trained dog without ever having it you know it was done before without this technology i can do it too yeah i think we all have to we all have to kind of draw that line in the sand and sometimes it's hard to do i know for me you mentioned trail cameras earlier and And every everybody has their own lines to draw but but for me they missed i guess the high paying client or whatever doesn't care but for me you missed everything by not following that dog through the woods because when you're following your dog, you learn what that lion does. You came to his kill. Yep. Lion, I don't care if it's a year after he killed it. He'll swing back through where he killed an animal. And then the whole time he lying on, I found elk rubs and water holes that I went later and set up tree stands and kill elk. And when I found them, yeah, they, I was through the woods following a lion, you know. Uh, just just like of, you described, uh, I, I was just without dogs. You can't hunt lions with dogs here in Oregon, but I found fresh cut fresh tracks here in Idaho, in Idaho a couple years ago, and then in Oregon here this last winter, and 
just following the tracks for miles. I didn't, you know, didn't turn up a lion, but the places it showed me were, you know, in areas that I knew the Oregon case, you know, I knew that area pretty well, but following that lion tracks is like a whole different area. I never would have seen all these neat little cedar groves along the Creek and, 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 you know, finding their scratching posts and, um, little buck, buck rub pockets. Uh, that never would have seen otherwise. That that's uh, my whole opinion. I could be wrong because I don't live there. But if the Washington and Oregon hound hunters would have said, "Okay, let's make tracking collars illegal," they probably could still have a season. Yeah, well, I think that 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 could be. They'd lobby and say, "Okay, we're going to get rid of all these electronics and even up the playing field." I think they might still have a season. Yeah, I, I think that uh, that that could be said about archery season. I mean, we're we're uh, facing that here in the lower forty-eight, and as the technology uh, keeps increasing, and more and more people are jumping into the liberal seasons of bow seasons with uh, the technology. We're seeing our seasons being decreased and going to draws and limited entries. And and uh, I think you're exactly right. When you remove the technology, you create more opportunity and um, uh, it, and it, it keeps it more uh, more more pure. And uh, technology is, is a great thing in, in our daily lives, but it seems to ruin uh, hunting as a whole, you know, in, in my opinion. I know um, for me, I've had a hard time drawing the a line in the sand on trail cameras. I, I've owned them, I've used them, and I've recently gotten rid of them. I just find like they just don't make me. I don't feel good about it using them. And it's if other guys want to use them, I'm not going to judge them. You know, a lot of my friends use them, but I find that I learn less when I have the camera in the woods. I get lazy, and so yeah. when when I don't have the camera in the woods, I got to go find the sign. I got to go find the scrapes. I got to go find the hookins. I, 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 I got to find the bedding areas. And when I have the camera out there, I go, oh, well, no buck walked by this pinch point. So there's no bucks in here. And the chance of getting a picture of a buck on a, on a, on a single camera and a pinch point is slim to none. You know that. I mean, they'll, they can just walk right around it. And so, yeah, for me, you know, trying to uh, eliminate technology from my uh, daily hunting, I think is uh well you know you heard me on trail cameras up here in my opinion they get they get wet and they take 500 pictures of a branch well <laughs> i just soon go out in the woods thinking that big five by five was going to come by me instead of look at a trail camera yeah. trip and say nothing's walked by this tree in 30 days what are you doing here you know yeah or if you walked by yesterday that gives you yeah. fal- false confidence that's what happened yesterday that's not what's going to happen today or tomorrow and, and so, for me, if I got if I got deer sign, I don't care what state I'm in. It takes me about ten minutes to decide where I think I want to put a tree. Yes, yes. Just by sign on the ground, you yeah. know. So that goes back to woodsmanship skills, and I feel like technology is what robs us of gaining those woodsmanship skills. And I think that that's what's wrong with hunting today is the lack of woodsmanship skills due to yeah. uh, battery operated devices. That's like bad gnome. Everybody talks about how good those trackers are. In Africa? They still got you. Yeah. Yeah, you were talking yeah, about Africa. Bushman. Bushman. It's just a lot of it. I It took me about one day to figure that out. They don't have the bills. They don't have anything else to worry about. And they're good, but they read the sand just like I would read the snow lion hunting. Yep. They read the sand. If they're in hard soil and stuff without blood, they're not as... And it's, what's sad 
is everybody thinks they're so great because most of the trackers in the United States are that poor. Right. You yeah. know, most trackers, like I told you the other day, I, I watch the outdoor channel for information, you know, just for, just for entertainment purposes only. And those guys double on a white tail and then they, Oh my God, my God, I don't know. I got to go get 20 guys to help me find it. <laughs> And it's like, I just saw your video and saw the hit. I think if I sat here for 30 minutes, I could go find it in five. You're right. Yeah. But, yeah. but most of, so that's all I can figure out is most of the, the rest of the tractors are that bad. Yeah. Uh, tracking is a, is a lost art for sure. And, and it should be one of the number one tools as a bow hunter. I mean, that's, that's something you should There's be constantly. Just no wood. Yeah, Not just, much for wood. Our, our friend, uh, our friend Walt Miller always says, uh, the more you take into the woods with you, the less you take out of the woods. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one for sure. And I know my, my day pack for, well, I take a lot of clothes with me because I don't want to get, you know, I get cold sitting in a tree, but so I take a lot of clothes. So my pack for the heavy, but it seems like when I started bow hunting, I had a jackknife in my pocket and a bow. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of guys, they, they limit their, their, uh, they limit their adventures uh, it, it, you know, to pursue wild things and wild places because they don't think they have enough gear. They need to buy more gear and they get caught up in spending all their time and money on, uh, you know, twiddling with gear instead of actually going out and doing these adventures. Um, yeah. and so that's something that we're always trying to promote is, you know, get a tag and get a plane ticket or get some gas money and, and take what you got and get out there and, and make some experiences, make some memories. It's all relative to how much time you spend in the woods, you know. Right. Well, why don't we uh, wrap yep. this? Why don't we wrap this podcast up with uh, one of your? Give us one of your uh, favorite hunting stories. We give us one more great story to uh, to leave us dreaming about September. Okay, I'll give you my my last my last caribou hunt. I don't know if it was a favorite one, but um, I think it was not my last. The last caribou raid. One of the last ones I got on the Alaska Peninsula before it closed down. Um, a pilot that I'd known from the old days that worked for one of the guys I worked for, he um, had a flight service out of Knack and he had another couple pilots, and we were kind of sitting around helping him shuttle people back and forth in his van from the airstrip in King Salmon, just and staying at his house. You know, he's a friend of mine. And, We'd been there a couple of days helping him, and um, the, he said, it might be a couple of days before I get you out. And we said, no problem, don't worry. And um, anyway, so he asked his pilot, he says, on the way back in, scout for some caribou for these guys. It's time I get them out of here and get hunting, you know. And the pilot came back in, and we're chomping at the bit. And, and the pilot, oh, I didn't see anything. And the, the the guy, the pilot that wasn't a guy anymore, but the pilot that owned the service, his name was Wendy Wendell, and he'd been one of the old timers, guided polar bears and everything. And anyway, Wendy says, "Get your gear and hop in the plane. I'll find you for some caribou." And anyway, he took us out, and there was a little like cinder cinder flats out in the Alaska Peninsula that they use for airstrips, and there was a cinder flat. And basically, there was caribou on all four sides of the airstrip within sight. So he landed. It was in the afternoon. He landed, and um, we set up camp. And then the next morning, 
there were still caribou in every direction. And I told my partner who'd never been to Alaska, I said, well, which way do you want to go? And he pointed and I said, he said, I'll go this way. And I, um, I suppose it was maybe a mile from camp. I see a herd of caribou and it looked like one of the bulls, there was three bulls in one. He's a social rack, but he looked like he had a really big front shovel. And I'd never killed one with a front shovel that looked that big. And I just thought, heck, it's a herd of caribou and they're here. You know, there's probably eight or 10 in the herd. And I, um, on caribou, most people see them out on the flats and think they're undoable, but you just got to belly crawl and watch it. And I, I had to belly crawl about 300 yards and I kind of got around them and I got up on my knees and I could see the top of it. I could see from his bottom of his chest on up and I shot and the arrow was just a tad far back, if anything, and just completely disappeared. I was using my 80 pound chafer then. I had, 2219 with a black diamond delta, you know, some normal equipment. And anyway, they were just kind of on the verge of a little hill. Like I said, I couldn't see their feet and they all spun around and ran. Well, I did a wind sprint about 40 yards up to where I shot him and looked over the edge and the herd was already coming out of the, the bottom on the other side and he wasn't in there. And this was just instantly after I shot. So I took about, walked about 10 more yards forward and looked down and he was already laying down dying so that was a pretty neat hunt one stock and one shot and when i got up to him he didn't have the real big shovel i thought he had it was a perfect double shovel oh cool so how how far did he stock in for the shot how close well, i suppose 70 yards but see he took three steps and i couldn't see him anymore just the way he was just the way they were lined you, up you shot him at 70 with the 80 pound bow and it just spit right in I went back to find my arrow, and back then we shot four five-inch veins for stability using big old wiggy deltas and heavy bows. So we shot four five-inch veins is what we were using, so they were pretty visible. And it was like 20 yards past where the arrow went through my caribou. There was the arrow stuck in the tundra. The shot was a 70-yard wow. shot? Pardon me? It was a 70-yard shot, and you got a pass-through? No, no, the, the shot was only 40 yards. It was okay. 70 yards okay. before he traveled. Okay, gotcha. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, and uh, it was just kind of neat. You said it looked it looked a tad that? far back, but what did you find uh, inside? Was it was you get both lungs? and? Yeah, it was, it was right through the back of both lungs. In my mind's high, but the thing about a caribou is when they're on those open flats, you know, you can you actually can see what's happened and where they're going, you know? And I actually thought, it, I felt it was a little far back, but it was right through the back of both lungs. What, what was neat is, is one stock, one shot. And then we got, my friend took, I think it was three more days. And then he got a caribou and he was, he was getting stocks all the time. And I was sitting in camp and we had really nice weather. And I had two Bull caribou that I'd have been tickled to take home with at different times while I was sitting around camp, walk right through camp between those two lakes. <laughs> we got back the, the like pilot a good place to caribou hunt. Yeah, and the pilot who I knew and his wife from you know years before working on the peninsula, he refused to take my money. I had to end up leaving the money in his bathroom on medicine cabinet. <sighs> You know, just for, you know, then we're talking you know, a $300. Guy. 
he he wouldn't even, he tried not even take he he was refusing to even take my money and you know what a great hunt wow that sounds like a that sounds like a great hunt so what do you got uh what are you looking at for uh this fall do you got any hunts planned and how is this um, uh coronavirus is this uh affecting you guys up in alaska very much we have a you know within 13 air miles of my house is a brown bear area it's registration and you're talking a rainforest where you know they're they hear a boat motor and they dive into the trees and i'll try to get a boat ride over there or something and we have some registration moose areas but right now with this coronavirus you know usually i do a little spring bear hunting over there but um it's just hard to say but i, I did not draw any permits this year okay I, you know, we, every year we, everybody in Alaska, same as every place else, puts in any permits. But, but right now we, we actually have nothing planned. But probably a little brown bear hunting, and maybe, maybe go to one of these coals or moose areas or something. And but these these by, close by, moose by, areas in southeast are real, real is a pretty low probability hunt, you know. Okay. But so. it's there. So a little brown bear hunting and and uh, your beloved blacktails in the fall. Yeah, yeah. There's always the blacktails. That's the thing. I can always hunt blacktails. Yeah. Well, we we really appreciate your time. And um, if yeah, you got, you can edit out any of the long winded stuff. Oh yeah. I repeated myself. No sweat. Sure. And um, I uh, just might be uh, taking you up on that uh, blacktail hunt within the next couple seasons. I'll stay in touch because uh, that's the time on my bucket list there. Do it. Um, and then we have um, we have a really good black bear hunt, but you got to put in. It's really crazy for the non-resident has to put in like 18 months before the season. Weird. Huh. Wow. It's it's a really weird deal because you're, you're, like, say you'd put in now and it'd be for the fall hunting. 2022 or something it's it's really crazy but and some guys come up here and think there's a bear behind every tree and there isn't there's a lot of bears but you know it's thick it's thicker than probably your thickest stuff on oregon you know yeah we can debate that another time but sure. <laughs> uh, I've tree that bear tag? It's, the, it's the thickest escape cover i've ever seen yeah that's funny it's uh, it easy lives? to draw that tag Pardon me. For non for non residents, is it easy to draw that tag, or your odds good of drawing it? You just have to do it eighteen months. Actually, at a, time. a pretty high draw, like a forty percent draw. But most guys get so screwed up on the application. And I don't know. You're probably chasing elk in September, but that the September bear hunt where you'd hunt along the salmon streams for a bow and arrow hunt that'd be a super hunt and plus you bring your fly rod and catch salmon in the meantime you know yeah, that sounds like a hoop well you got a like good place to live why don't you leave uh leave our listeners with uh maybe some some uh life advice pardon me some life advice for a bow hunter some life advice yeah life advice life advice like how, what do us young guys need to do to become a guy like Rosie Rosen when we're older? <laughs> if you get married, have a wife that puts up with it. That's good life. Uh, marriage, <laughs> marriage advice, even better. I mean, like is, is don't let don't let the other stuff get you down, and and just go hunt and hunt as long as you can and as hard as you can, and just keep trying. I like and it. and have fun. You know, 
just have, just enjoy yourself and have fun. I, I I like that. I think that's what it's all about. Um, yeah, forget well, the small game. I know arrows. What are arrows now? Six or eight bucks a shot. Right. By the time you got your broadhead and everything on them, right? If I see a grouse and I don't get him with the judo points, the broadheads come out. <laughs> yep, let them fly. I That's I what I tell people, grouse. but then I'm biased. Yep. Don't forget the small game because that's a lot of fun. Lots too. of lots of fun to be had there. Yeah, that's there's some guys shooting a hundred dollar broadhead arrow nowadays, and I think they uh, miss out well, on a lot a of that like, fun. But yeah, tell tell them to go back and get some cheaper heads. <laughs> yeah, at least yeah, you keep your hundred dollar broadhead arrows, but but at least throw in some cheapies for yeah. the grouse and red squirrels. Yep, I always say the rule number one in archery hunting is uh, don't fall in love with your arrow. Yeah. Yeah, I knew guys that used to used to put all these wild, and you know, we were talking about the fancy woods, all these wild designs of paints. It's no, 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 broadhead on one, fletch on the other. Yeah, let That's it fly. All you need yeah. let, let her fly. Shoot straight. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we really appreciate uh, getting to know you on here. Um, the listeners are going to love it, and uh, we're going to stay in touch and hope to maybe get you back on again. And good luck to you this fall. Add about any of the long-winded stuff. With this corona, I haven't talked to anybody for a few days, so I'm getting too gabby. <laughs> we're all, we're all, yeah. How is so the? Is, how yeah, is? Can't how, have enough hunting stories. How is the coronavirus up there in Alaska? Like uh, down here, they've got us. You know, they're trying to keep us in our houses and stuff. Like, what's going on up there? It's kind of scary because well, we've been on lockdown more than regular states because. You know, if it got in one of these native villages, it might be just disastrous, you know. But um, the bad thing is, is everybody that comes here has to come through Seattle, which was ground zero in the West. Right. Or they hit Ketchikan, and Ketchikan at last count had like 14 cases, and now there's two cases on the island. And everybody's being really good about social distancing and stuff pretty much, but the um, there's always that faction that doesn't care, it can't happen to me. Right. And that's what we're afraid of. We, I don't think we're even close to seeing the damage it might do. Yeah, it's scary. This is a crazy time we're living in, for sure. Just now getting here. Yeah, you know? it just showed up in my county where I live in Oregon. We can, they shut the they shut the non-resident bear hunt down. Yep, they just you did know, that we, here too. They just shut the non-resident fishing and hunting down. I had a friend from California that was going to come hunt bear with me this spring and. He had a tag in his pocket, but they just shut that down, and we're wondering if if our fall season, if if they're gonna allow the non-residents to participate, or if we're gonna have a season, or it's, it seems kind of crazy. Yeah, and like right now, um, but see, we got everybody gets here has to go through Seattle almost. You know, right. we don't want that. Right. And now um, we can go hunting, but we're not supposed to unless it's medical or some emergency. We got like two main other towns on the island but there's actually about four of them and you're not supposed to go from one town to another but now if i want to drive out and go bear hunting that's totally right and if you want to go down on the stream fishing for steelhead you can do that but you're not supposed yeah, you're to, not putting anybody at risk doing that yeah and you're supposed but you're supposed to like get gas in the community you live in so right. you're not driving to another community and you're just you know so we're we're pretty much on total lockdown. Yeah, they're saying stick to your stick to your local streams, your local lakes, your local woods. No traveling. Exactly. Yeah, so it's it's a crazy you know, and, time. And you know, right now, you know, they, 
the older you get, the less bow seasons you have in front of you. And I'm, I'm, I'm totally fine with that, you know, on this lockdown, you know, till they get a handle on it or start coming up with a vaccine, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You can't, you can't go bow hunting if you're sick or dead. And you, you know, so traditional hunters, we kind of hide out like coyotes anyway, you know, so nothing much is that different. Yeah. I'm still <laughs> skeptical, but we'll see. Well, I'm just jealous. You guys are, uh, you're, you live in Alaska and Carson went last year and he's going back this year. I'm going to have to, going to have to find a, a way to, uh, get up North. Cause it sounds like, uh, bow hunters paradise up there. Yeah. There's no yeah, time like you, the present. You just got to realize that there, there's in most areas, there is no special bow season, but you know, when I hunted whitetails in Montana, we had 400 guys in the town that hunted elk with a bow. But during the whitetail rut, it was open rifle season. There was, you know, special archery season ended like the first 10 days in October. So 400 out of 400 elk hunters, there were six that bow hunted whitetail. Because rifle hunting, rifle season started, and they just caved in and said, you can't hunt a deer out there with the Orange Army. And we'd just go, and on public land, we'd just go climb in the trees and hunt over scrapes and grub lines. and. Yep had great whitetail hunting but it just people just don't think it works and, and you, uh, that's one thing is you it, know uh you know scott colzer oh yeah really good uh we've had him on but we've also had his son brian colzer on a couple times brian is Who's the a, other one brian colzer his son oh yeah no i know brian yeah brian is an accomplished whitetail he hunter have his own rock and roll band i've heard that i've heard that yeah yeah, he uh, he's one of my uh, one of my favorite interviewees. We had him on talking about uh, hunting whitetails one time, and we had him on again on mule deer. Uh, that guy has took in some outstanding mule deer bucks from spitting distance range with his uh, longbow and recurve. I mean, that guy is quite the hunter. Yeah, no, I've I've known Brian since he was only about three feet tall. Oh, that's awesome. I think he, I don't know if he's quite as tall as Scott, but no, I've, I've known Scott since the mid seventies, I think. Great guys. Definitely. Yeah. That's what's awesome about traditional bow hunting. The community is, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. There's really no word to describe, uh, the feeling you get when you get a, amongst these people, this, uh, caliber of men. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, we really appreciate the time and, uh, I'll stay in touch and I may be uh, hitting you up for that blacktail hunt next year. Yeah, do it. All right. Thanks for I hope I hope the interview was worth your time. I don't know. Oh, it was great. We really enjoyed it. This is going to be uh, episode 100 for us. Okay. Right. <laughs> well, I don't know. You might need a, you might need to get in another one for a different one from your episode 100. Oh no. Uh, it's going to be great. We, we appreciate, we appreciate you and I'll uh, check in with you again this fall and see how, uh, how your season went. Okay. Great. Great talking with All you. Right. Thanks Rosie. Thanks Rosie. You bet. Bye. Bye. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me along. Uh, James, appreciate it. Yeah. Right. We got a cabin. All righty. Thank yeah. you. Okay, bye. Thanks again for supporting the podcast. Don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast. Check us out on Instagram. Check our website out at tradquest.com. Keep the wind in your face. Pick a spot. 
and shoot straight. Frosty before the sun comes up, the geese are on the wing. The deer are fat and happy, no, they don't suspect a thing. I can't take it any longer, I've got to breathe some air. The only cure for what I've got is a week or so out there. I've got Nimrod neurosis, longbows on the brain. I'm an outdoor junkie through and through, hunts my middle name. Get outside, so I can play the view. Are you singing this song? Now we all go outside and shoot.